Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Factor Fantasy with Chase and Josh again. That is Chase. I am Josh, and we are here to present to you the conclusion of Goblet of Fire, the story in the book, chapters 34 through 37. And I am really pumped to get into today because this is where the climax, the rubber meets the road, is what they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, that's almost like the rubber explodes off the road. <laughs> with two uh two tractor trailers going at it and then it explodes in the middle during the <laughs> during the whole wreckage and carnage but feeling good like i should let's do this today man this is Dude. when we uh you know it it what's funny too is you want to say like it doesn't get any better than this but it's like this harry potter train just keeps going on the up and up man but this is, uh, you know, I think this book is definitely what sets apart, like we've said before, separates uh, the kids from the adults. <laughs> and, um, you know, today uh, it's probably one of the most action-packed scenes that we'll wind up breaking down for you guys out of really the entire franchise. Definitely top three of that I can think of for sure. Uh, there's one next book that's pretty epic and then obviously towards the end of the book there's another one but yeah man I would say top three for sure uh, it's it's really exciting because this this is gonna be us getting through our first major book in the Harry Potter series right so like we've done Game of Thrones in the past but that was mostly focused on the series you know this is all focused majority on the book itself and the books up to this point have been fairly small not like you know terribly tiny but this is the first large you know in large and in charge book that we're <laughs> tackling and it's gonna be nice to get it under our belts at the end of today and because of that and all the climax that you were talking about i think it's important to tell the audience members and the listeners that a lot of today what you're going to be hearing is going to be a little bit of like read and discuss because we were talking about this last night these chapters are so intensely detailed between the big moments that happen, the, the full circles that come around to how the events came to be where they are now, what happens going forward to the future into the Order of the Phoenix next book. So a lot of it is going to be reading directly from the book because if we miss certain things, it really kind of takes away and derails the actual storyline and why things end up the way they do later on. So God, tuck in, guys. Put your seatbelts on. Buckle up because we're gonna be going uh, about 90 miles an hour with this book pretty quickly. <laughs> we're uh, in fourth gear and then about to go into fifth gear. <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna keep kicking up. And you know, right now I'd say we're at 90, and then we're gonna break 100 pretty soon. So it's uh, definitely you know full speed ahead. Uh, definitely Hogwarts Express off the rails right now. Uh, with today what's going on and um, I will say too what's really cool about especially the episode we're going to break down today even after the major climactic event one thing I really loved about this episode we're going to do today so these final chapters of the book because this is this is it for Goblet Man um, you really see in these final chapters in the book part this is when you start to see like Dumbledore stand his ground and you do kind of get to see, I don't want to say like that fiery, um, not angst or like power, but it's to the point of you can see all the ability of what Dumbledore is capable of with uh, why Death Eaters and all the people of the dark arts 
really do fear him because he's not just that calm um you know of course he is a great mentor but he's not just that calm peaceful i'm gonna give in all the time like this is the part where you start to really see you know dumbledore stands his ground and he's not just going to be mr nice guy anymore uh, and and so that's what i really loved about it but with that man once again this is uh jay nelly all in the house today man it's great stuff jay nelly yeah this is his book man i'm gonna let him take the major parts today and then you know when we uh keep on climbing the ladder over here i'll take a lot of the stuff uh some of the major parts of order of the phoenix so uh but with that i think you know i will say this you know i finally brought out my death eater one today man so my patronus is a grass snake and cedric you know like we uh sent him off farewell in all the best best ways we possibly could um which shout out to uh someone we had a cool review someone reviewed that we should uh do twilight at some point speaking of cedric so we see your reviews that really means a lot to us of course um right now we just have a lot on the table but we'll we'll get to it at some point (laughs) some point down the road uh but once again guys you know uh definitely always uh leave us a review subscribe uh check us out on instagram jay nelly and i just got the new pro max baby the 12 (laughs) so uh we'll definitely be on there uh you'll probably get some more like party videos or something every now and then we'll figure out (laughs) but uh with that man i'm gonna let jay nelly kick us off after we get a malice in the chalice baby sounds good brother one thing i want to mention too before i jump into the the contents of the book is that with today you guys are going to get something that you always like our rankings of the top five magical creatures that's going to come out today um also uh with the way that it's going to be broken down uh instead of we usually do interesting facts at the end and chase is still gonna do his interesting facts what i'm gonna do instead of interesting facts for today is i'm i have a list of reasons why goblet of fire is my favorite book in the series and i'm gonna list off why in my opinion i love goblet so much and why i think it it stands above the rest of the books in the series so when he does his interesting facts i'm gonna close this out today with reasons why goblet is my favorite book in the harry potter series so Look forward to the magical creatures here coming up in an in a hour and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how fast we get through stuff. Uh, but yeah, man, let's get the malice and the chalice. Let's get into it, because we got a lot to cover, baby. It's going to be a jam-packed episode today, man. Woo. Cheers, okay, brother. Off to, uh, <laughs> off to the, off to the races, misery, man. We're going to about to go uh, 98 on the Autobahn. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, we know Mad-Eye Moody saw that pit. He sure did. Way down there. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it, man. Let's uh, have you kick us off for this is um you know where we really light the fire (laughs) in the words of Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. (laughs) Let's do it. We didn't start it, but we're gonna describe it. So (laughs) uh, we're gonna start off here with chapter thirty-four. It's Priori Incantatum. All right. This so if you guys remember where we left off last week, we kind of left you on the cliffhanger of. Uh, Voldemort ordering Wormtail to give Harry back Harry's wand, telling him he's going to duel like a man face to face, and that's kind of where we cut it. Now we're going to get into what happens during this uh, epic face-off between the 14-year-old boy and the darkest wizard of all time. So 
Absolutely, man. Uh, going into it, page 659. Uh, this is the very beginning of the chapter. This is just something I wanted to point out. Remember when uh, Voldemort gave Wormtail his new silver hand? Well, in the book, it mentions a couple times, like, the strength of it, like, in this book. It's something that really doesn't come up again out throughout the series in my memory of either the book or the movies. Because, like, it's not just another hand that he grew back. Like, it, like, remember it says that he, like, swiped out all of the ropes with one quick grab. Like, when he first had it, he crushed the twig into, into dust in his hands. Like, this new hand that Voldemort gave him, not only is it shiny and silver, it's really powerful, too. And it's just one of those things that doesn't really come up again. And I'm curious as to why. But uh, after that, you know, in page 659, continuing on for that very first page, uh, his injured leg shakes like underneath him and he can barely put weight on it. So not only is he outnumbered 30 to 1 Death Eaters and Lord Voldemort as a 14-year-old boy, he's not even fully healthy. Remember like the, the spider hit his leg with the pincers before he even got to like the graveyard? So on top of that, like this kid's in all sorts of distress, right? Physical, emotional, he just watched Cedric get killed like not even five minutes ago. Like it's just a mess. Uh, you know, he's got to face all this alone. He's got nobody there with him. He's in a graveyard full of Death Eaters and like the most evil wizard that ever walked the earth. So that being said, I'm actually going to go ahead and, and start reading through the chapter itself. So we're going to go through here where it says... Uh, there was a split second, perhaps, when Harry might have considered running for it, but his injured leg shook under him as he stood on the overgrown grave as the Death Eaters closed ranks, forming a tighter circle around him and Voldemort, so the gaps where the missing Death Eaters should have stood were filled. Wormtail walked out of the circle to the place where Cedric's body lay and returned with Harry's wand, which he thrust roughly into Harry's hand without looking at him. Then Wormtail resumed his place in the circle of the watching Death Eaters. "'You've been taught how to duel, Harry Potter,' asked Voldemort softly, his red eyes glinting through the darkness. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. This is another point that we've got an issue with. When it, I know we're going to talk about differences next week when we fully move past Goblet, but Voldemort's red eyes are mentioned like six times in this book. Why was he given like regular eyes in the movie? I don't know, but that's neither here nor there. I digress, so I shall continue on with my story here. <laughs> so... Uh, at these words, Harry remembered as though from a former life the dueling club at Hogwarts, which he had attended briefly two years ago. All he had learned there was a disarming spell, Expelliarmus. And what use would it be to deprive Voldemort of his wand, even if he could, when he was surrounded by Death Eaters outnumbered by at least thirty to one? He had never learned anything that could possibly fit him for this. He knew he was facing the thing against which Moody had always warned, the unblockable Avada Kedavra curse. And Voldemort was right. His mother was not here to die for him this time. He was quite unprotected. So if we talk about what's looking here, like, we took stock of the situation, right? We already mentioned the fact that he's 14 years old, he's by himself, but now this mentioning of his mother real quick is just a quick foreshadow. I just wanted to point that out quickly there of what's to come when he said his mother's not there to die for him again. Now, we bow to each other, Harry, said Voldemort, bending a little, but keeping his snake-like face upturned to Harry. Come, the niceties must be observed. Dumbledore would like you to show manners. Bow to death, Harry. And the Death Eaters were laughing again, and Voldemort's lipless mouth was smiling. Harry did not bow. He was not going to let Voldemort play with him before killing him. 
It was not going to give him that satisfaction. I said, bow. Voldemort said, raising his wand, and Harry felt his spine curve as though a huge invisible hand were bending him ruthlessly forward, and the Death Eaters laughed harder than ever. Very good, said Voldemort softly as he raised his wand, the pressure bearing down upon Harry lifted too. And now you face me like a man, straight-backed and proud, the way your father died. And now, we duel. Voldemort raised his wand, and before Harry could do anything to defend himself, before he could even move, he had been hit again with the Cruciatus Curse. The pain was so intense, so all-consuming, that he no longer knew where he was. White-hot knives were piercing every inch of his skin. His head was surely going to burst with pain, and he was screaming more loudly than he'd ever screamed in his life. Let's stop here for a second and talk about this, guys. Why is Voldemort so happy putting, like, the torture curse on a 14-year-old. Like, he's literally torturing this child. Like, this shows a little bit about the cruelty of who he is. Like, he's almost like a lion playing with a mouse. If you guys remember the Lion King, when Scar grabbed it and Mufasa's like, when Azazu tells him, you, got, you shouldn't play with your food before you eat it. He's toying with a boy. He's not even a man. Like, he just started getting interested in girls this year. This guy is just a psychopath. Like, there's... I get it, he's got to show force and power because all of his followers might have thought that, you know, Harry was stronger than him and that's why he over like couldn't kill him when he was one years old. Is that your thought process? What do you think about that? My thought process is it's just like Scar said, life's not fair, is it? You see, I can never be king. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, honestly, I think Voldemort, I think really this is where he makes this is where he makes a lot of mistakes because uh he's kind of showing off here and letting his guard down because he's trying to show off to these death eaters by it's like someone that almost say almost if you take a football team or a soccer team or something like that right um say they got blown out before like you just got blown out the first time you face these guys and you're the ones with all the talent because you didn't think anything was going to happen like let's even go back to remember a couple years ago when ucf played auburn and props to the knights man when they beat auburn but it's like they got beat because almost like they didn't care like they overlooked it right which is what he was thinking let's go back to when you know the curse rebounded that night which we all know uh so no spoilers there really but you know Voldemort in my opinion at that night wasn't expecting at all what to happen he was going up against the really the only big threat in his mind there was possibly James possibly um and and you know Lily for damn sure wasn't and especially not what was left on the ground like a, a literally a baby was on the ground like the most powerful wizard of all time is getting taken down by a baby no he didn't think about that at all but now he's trying to really prove to all these death eaters that he's conjured in which by the way i don't know why the film showed like six death eaters there if it said 30 to 1 but all right I'll go with it. I can let it slide. I can let it slide. Some other things I cannot. We'll talk about that next week. Anyways, but my point is here, this is where he makes a lot of mistakes because he really does overlook Harry, which honestly you can't, as much as I can't stand Voldemort and hate him, 
you really can't put a lot of blame on him because I feel like anyone that's the most powerful dark wizard of the world, of course, would overlook a 16-year-old boy. He's 16, right? 14. 14. Oh, well, even worse. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be thinking too much about a 14-year-old boy. So now he's just really trying to almost play that bully role at this point and show off that, you know, this boy, that was the boy who lived, this whole thing was just a fluke. It wasn't that this kid was really meant to be. He's trying to show these Death Eaters this was just a fluke a long time ago, which leads him into a lot of mistakes, in my opinion. I agree with you, because if he just took it seriously and wanted to get it over with, he could have killed them immediately, and like it just got it over with, like in a bunch of different ways. But yeah, I think it's like <laughs> it's that bully mentality. He's gonna make, he's gonna show his force and leave no doubt in anybody's mind who the stronger wizard is. But like, what are you really proving, man? Like this guy hasn't even got his education at like high school. Like you're you're <laughs> you're like literally the strongest wizard that ever existed, with the possible exception of Albus Dumbledore. Like, what are you proving by, you know, defeating a 14-year-old in a battle of, like, wizardry? I don't know, man. But <clears throat> let's continue on and <laughs> go through that part. So, and then it stopped. Harry rolled over and scrambled to his feet, and he was shaking uncontrollably as Wormtail had done when his hand had been cut off. He staggered sideways into the wall, watching Death Eaters as they pushed him away back towards Voldemort. So that's almost like if you guys circle up in one of those high school fights and you get bumped, like bumped into the crowd and they throw you back in the middle of the center. Like That's exactly Fight. what's happening. Fight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A little break, said Voldemort, the slit-like nostrils dilating with excitement. A little pause. That hurt, didn't it, Harry? You don't want me to do that again, do you? Harry didn't answer. He was going to die like Cedric. Those pitiless red eyes were telling him so. He was going to die, and there was nothing he could do about it. But he wasn't going to play along. He wasn't going to obey Voldemort. He wasn't going to beg. I asked you whether you want me to do that again, Voldemort said softly. Answer me. Imperio! And so now he's putting another unforgivable curse on Harry. So let's think about Harry's life real quick. And when he was one year old, Voldemort tried to kill him with the Avada Kedavra curse. That's one of the three unforgivable curses. We just saw him use the Cruciatus curse at the top of the page, and now he's putting him under the Imperius curse. He's literally doing all three illegal curses to this young, this 14-year-old. Like, it's, it's absurd. But, continuing on, Harry felt for the third time in his life the sensation that his mind had been wiped of all thought. Ah, it was bliss not to think. as It was as though he were floating, dreaming. Just answer no. Say no. Just answer no. I will not, said a stronger voice in the back of his head. I will not answer. Just answer no. I won't do it. I won't say it. Just answer no. I won't! And at these words burst from Harry's mouth, they echoed through the graveyard, and the dream state was lifted as suddenly as though cold water had been thrown over him. Back rushed the aches that the Cruciatus curse had left all over his body, Back rushed the realization of where he was and what he was facing. You won't, said Voldemort quietly, and the Death Eaters were not laughing now. You won't say no? Harry, obedience is a virtue I need to teach you before you die. Perhaps another little dose of pain. I do want to stop here and talk about this. How crazy is it that Harry fought this imperious curse from Lord Voldemort, this 14-year-old boy? Because when we learn that what happens... In the next chapter, not to give anything away yet, 
But there are multiple people we find out who have been put under this Imperius curse that are far stronger and better wizards than Harry that couldn't fight it. And he does, like, they learn to fight it later on. Like, it's not something they can do right away. Voldemort just did it. Harry fought Voldemort on the first time. This strongest wizard, a 14-year-old boy, overcame the Imperius curse from older Voldemort. What do you think about that, bro? It makes me really... Well, I mean, this is when you really have to tell yourself... You can't really deny... Malice in the Chalice. Because <laughs> this is kind of going to take some... Uh, I mean, you really can't deny Harry's talent with magic either. I mean, as far as... It really kind of goes to show, if you think about it, he really is, like, the chosen one. Uh, because, I mean, there's been far more experienced wizards that haven't been able to conjure that in the most dire situations. Now, with that being said, taking it like a grain of salt, uh, you kind of wonder what all of this is really pure adrenaline like if you th think about this right and for all our audience members if you can kind of relate it if you've ever been in like a life or death situation um or if you've ever been hurt really bad like i i can give you two examples like one time uh actually so i actually had a nail go straight through my thumb and it was squirting out blood everywhere and i barely made it to the hospital on time i was fine you know, I sucked it up later, but in that moment, I still remember, like, I wasn't panicking. I was more calm than anything, and my mind was literally, like, to the point of, it was one, two, three. What are you doing in a row to get to this hospital? It was, I dropped the hammer, everything where I was. In my mind, I knew I had to go get something to put over my thumb at the time because I was losing so much blood. This happened, like, three years ago. And instantly what I did was I still remember I had like a, a part of either the curtains or something that I was taking down because it was at one of my old apartments and I just grabbed it and wrapped it around it as a tourniquet and this was years ago and I just went straight there or like for instance I had a situation where um, I ran into an altercation down a road I shouldn't have been on a couple years ago but my point is you start wondering at this point of course, you can't deny Harry's talent because multiple wizards have been in this situation where it has been pure adrenaline and wouldn't be able to hold their own against this guy. However, you start wondering how much of this is pure adrenaline at this point for Harry, and he's not really thinking as much as just doing because, as he just said, you know, uh, I mean, he hasn't really learned the whole... It's not like he's taken the whole... Spellbound book, spell book of spells in Hogwarts, and like actually like practice all these like what you know, stupefy, expelliarmus, you know, um, you know, petrificus totalis. Like there's only so much he really knows. So at this point, I would have to base it on it. Really, truly is. This is when you actually see. He really is the chosen one, because really he's acting in this whole whole scene that. Josh is going to break down for you. It's really pure adrenaline, and it all winds up going into his favor. If one little detail changes, he's done. Like, literally, it has to be one little detail, and what gets, I think, how Voldemort, you know, makes the mistake here is really something 
almost no one would have really taken into account for the situation. Actually, I think it was actually a really genius part of the plan that he brought out there. But if Harry wasn't the chosen one, then he wouldn't have had um, what happens happen uh, to give him those extra few seconds. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, man. But that's my thought on that. I just think, really, this is the first time. I mean, of course, we go back to Sorcerer's Stone. He used his mind to get past the riddles in the chess game, and then he wound up beating, you know, Quirrell that had Voldemort there. And I guess that was even a little bit of an example of with adrenaline there uh, with how he defeated him. But this is really when you're starting to see, like, it really proves its point. He really is the chosen one here. Well, the chosen one stuff doesn't really come up until next book. That's never really mentioned in any sort of capacity. Um, but for me, I don't even think that so much is adrenaline at this point. I think what happens next, <clears throat> once this Imperious Curse is lifted, I think that might be a lot of adrenaline. But the thing is, is like this is an assault on your brain. Like It's trying to tell you what to do. Like The, the curse is you are trying to... It's telling you, basically taking full control of your mind and your body, and whatever it's supposed to happen as whatever I tell you to do, if I'm the person holding the Imperious Curse over you, you just do it without a mindless thought. So this is full-blown brain capacity of having the presence of mind to fight this off. That's not really adrenaline. Adrenaline's more of like kicking it into gear of what happens afterwards when he realizes he's got to scramble around, which we'll get into in just a second here. But that is still a crazy presence of mind to have in a dire situation when someone who casts some of the strongest spells you've ever seen or ever heard about is doing this to a child and he's got the presence of mind to overcome it when those, uh, those other wizards who are far, far older and more experienced could not. It's just really impressive. That's what I say more than anything. It's like, But that you just proved my point on everything you said. Because if he wasn't the chosen one, then he wouldn't have had that state of mind to overcome it. Because so many people have tried. For instance, if you go back to when Voldemort, but my was thing first is, it's not the power. chosen. The chosen thing one hasn't even come up yet. Is what I'm saying. Like I'm not saying this doesn't show anything. It's like that's not even a thought yet. Like no one knows anything about this chosen one thing. That's not. That's not something I that's mean, been brought up at all. I'm like, not so. saying it was mentioned at all. I'm just saying right. it start like this is really the first time you can notice something like that or at least take into account something like, like that. Because if he really wasn't, then why would his mind be able to overcome it at all? Like he's, that makes he's no shown sense. crazy because resilience to everything. It's not just Voldemort. Think about all the stuff he's been at school outside of uh, outside of Voldemort, like in the Quidditch matches and like when Snape's doing his, his stuff too and getting through those riddles and finding out the passageways to the Chamber of Secrets and you know like that he's come through a lot that's not even all specific specific to Voldemort you know just a good he's just a talented wizard you know what I mean like there's a lot of talented wizards out there but I mean what do they say about Albus Dumbledore they say he's the only wizard that you know who ever feared you know like he wouldn't ever take on Dumbledore head head to head to this point right obviously we know what, what kind of happens later right, on in the series right but I'll I'll give you this one I think but I don't know. I don't know if I can fully agree with you on this because the issue I have with it is, for instance, let's, let's, no, I'm not going to bring up this guy because I think the only other person that probably could have, in my opinion, which you'll probably agree with me on this, the only other person besides Albus Dumbledore, Harry Potter, 
that could have taken, in my opinion, taken Voldemort on one-on-one and probably beat him with Sirius Black. And that's my opinion about, you know, what we see him do later on and, and that sort of thing. But I Not just think, sick. like, I don't see any normal human just being able to take over the Imperius curse like it was nothing. Right. Well, we see people, like, fight it eventually, right? Like, like we'll learn, we'll learn that next chapter. People people overcome it over time when they start fighting it and we'll hear about that from the right. the, the imposter i'm not going to give too much away but uh so we hear about that happening but for the first time being attacked like straight up face to face and like fighting it off in that moment it's wildly impressive um i don't think that like I, as much as i love sirius black i don't think he's a match for voldemort because honestly it was it was saying that james and sirius were kind of like on the same playing field and voldemort killed james like it was nothing so like I don't even think Sirius has any shot against him. Like you know, I don't like, know, man. Like, like I don't think Lupin does, and I'm a Lupin guy. But yeah, Lu- Lupin's one of those guys. It's like you know, if you can't do, you teach. You know, he's one of those guys. that's like great. Okay, in I do agree with that. Like, yeah, that's he's that's one of the Lupin good old for boys, sure. But yeah, yeah he, but Sirius I, I is very man. talented. Like, I could see Sirius Black. Uh, like. I think maybe with the Imperius Curse, possibly. But I'm talking about like as an overall duel, like like to the death, like. He's no he's no match for Voldemort in terms of like like skill with a wand and, and surviving a one on one fight to the death. Like I mean, I be... think he'd hold his own. I don't oh, think he, he'd win. He would give he would he would make Voldemort use a little a little more. Like, think about this is the way I think about it, and I know we're getting off topic here, but I kind of love this. <laughs> like it, it was almost like with the Saiyans and Frieza in Dragon Ball Z, like. Like he kept going to another form. He had, he didn't have, like you know what I'm saying. Like like Sirius Black okay. could probably hold his his own against form two, but then when Frieza went up to form three, you know what I'm saying. Like he would just have to use a little bit more of his power than usual to to do it. Like okay, I get I, I see what you're saying. Like like he's just not. I'm he's, saying specifically for just what's happening now. Just like the if Imperius he was curse. Okay. with him, I think yeah. Sirius would be able to hold his own. Correct. Yes, I, I'm with you on that. That like if he's just trying like Voldemort would have to like take that duel seriously with Sirius Black. Yes, I agree. I just know that like if we're talking about an actual duel to the death, he's got no chance. Like he's. Yeah, a, I do. I do yeah. agree with that. A hundred percent. I'm just saying for like Throw, this throwing exact off the Imperius situation, curse. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, but. My point here is, which I, I've tried, like, I mean, clearly you probably don't see this at all. I'm just saying, like, there has to be something special about this boy because it's not like just any normal human at the age of 14 can just conquer the Imperious Curse. Agreed. Like, it takes over your mind. Like, he has to have some sort of special ability that is going on at the age of 14. This is a child. Like, grown-ass men can't conquer this damn thing. And you're saying the greatest dark wizard of all time that threw it on you at 14, your mind's able to conquer that. It's not just impressive, because, like, your brain has to literally have the ability to even break free of that curse. So my point is, I do agree, yes, he is. it is impressive, but I do also think, one, adrenaline goes into it, which goes into the point of, like, he's not backing down, which I don't think he would ever back down anyways, but I'm just saying, like, he has to have something special about this boy to even have, like, the brain capacity to be able to break a curse like that. Yeah, I mean, and especially the first time, the first go-around. And that's what I'm saying. But like we've we've already known there's been something special about Harry all along because somehow he finds his way out of very convoluted situations. Like in the very beginning of his life, 
he's the only person to ever survive the killing curse as a baby <laughs> like you know right. he's, he's like he's yeah. an infant he doesn't even know what a wand is he's like a little lump on the ground and he yeah. survives and i don't want to hold us up but i do want to yeah. make one more quick point on that yeah but think of it this way because this is what the kind of point i was trying to make so let's go back to sorcerer's stone how did he get there he has really used the help uh, of like to get to that climactic moment like when he fought Voldemort, right? And Sword Sorcerer's Stone, he used Ron's help to get past the chess game. He used the Hermione's help to get past the riddle. And then he was there, right? Even if we go into Chamber of Secrets, he it was still pretty much him, but he still had to use Ron's help to help get down to the chamber, like to open it and all this. Like this is really and then Azgavan, I would say that's kind of the first time I guess we kinda see him on his own. But he still used Hermione to help get to that situation. This is the first real time where, I mean, of course there's Cedric, but, you know, I'm even a Cedric guy and he stood no chance, right? This is really the first time we've seen Harry have to handle himself one-on-one. Like, there is no other, like, I'm not saying anyone, like, Hermione stepped in the way and saved him from the Dementors or anything. I'm not saying that. But this is the first time, really, where we get to see Harry use his own thoughts and skill here to take this guy on -on one-on-one like i mean before he's always had some sort of help from somebody thinking through it this is all on harry now so that's my point is this is really the first time we get to see that i would agree with you except what happens at the end of this chapter like so he does end up receiving help (laughs) like like, okay you got me there (laughs) like you know what i I would say the first 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. that's the first time he, he's so, the he's the luckiest know. the luckiest boy of all time he always has something crazy coming like i have to agree so. with you there yeah but, okay with that i'll let you take it away awesome sounds good my man all right so going on for further voldemort raised his wand but this time harry was ready with the reflexes born of his quidditch training he flung himself sideways onto the ground and rolled behind the marble headstone of voldemort's father and he heard it crack as the curse missed him. And that's what I think is more like the adrenaline side of stuff. Like, that little like, reflexes quickly. Like, all right, it's, it's fight or flight, live or die, right? Now, Voldemort continues on and says, We are not playing hide and seek, Harry, said Voldemort's soft, cold voice drawing near as the Death Eaters laughed. You cannot hide from me. Does this mean you are tired of our duel? Does this mean you prefer for me to finish it now, Harry? Come out. Harry, come out and play. Then it will be quick. It might even be painless. I would not know. I have never died. Harry crouched behind the headstone and he knew the end had come. There was no hope, no help to be had. And as he heard Voldemort draw nearer still, he knew one thing only, and it was beyond fear or reason. He was not going to die crouching here like a child playing hide and seek. He was not going to die kneeling at Voldemort's feet. He was going to die upright, like his father. And he was going to die trying to defend himself, even if no defense was possible. Before Voldemort could stick his snake-like face around the headstone, Harry stood up. He gripped his wand tightly in his hand, thrust it out in front of him, and threw himself around the headstone, facing Voldemort. Voldemort was ready. As Harry shouted, Expelliarmus! Voldemort cried, Avada Kedavra! And then a jet of a green light issued from Voldemort's wand, just as a red light blasted from Harry's, and they met in midair. And suddenly, Harry's wand was vibrating as though an electric charge were surging through it. His hand seized up around it, and he couldn't have released it even if he wanted to. 
and a narrow beam of light connected the two wands. But it was neither red nor green, but a bright, deep gold. Harry followed the beam with his astonished gaze and saw that Voldemort's long white fingers, too, were gripping a wand that was shaking and vibrating. And then nothing could have prepared Harry for this. He felt his feet lift from the ground. He and Voldemort were both being raised into the air, their wands still tightly connected by that thread of shimmering golden light. They glided away from the tombstone of Voldemort's father, and they came to rest on a patch of ground that was clear and free of graves. The Death Eaters were shouting. They were asking Voldemort for instructions. They were closing in, reforming the circle around Harry and Voldemort. The snake slithering at their heels, some of them drawing their wands. The golden thread connecting Harry and Voldemort splintered, though the wands remained connected and a thousand more beams arched high over Harry and Voldemort, crisscrossing all around them until they were enclosed in a dome-shaped web cage of light beyond which the Death Eaters circled like jackals, their cries strangely muffled now. So the way that I thought about this when I read that passage, bro, is I read it as like almost like a force field surrounded them. Like it's like a, like they're inside their own specific bubble and like nothing can get to them right now. It's it's almost like they're in the presence of others, but they're completely alone in that in that uh, dome shaped like force field. Is the best way I could put it, man. It's like a force field. Is that what you kind of thought too? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really cool how they were like lifting up out of the air. I was thinking like Chris Angel on Mind Freak, <laughs> like they're just like levitating above the thing. Uh, yeah. Um, it almost reminded me of like two people in space if they were like shooting stuff at each other as they're just like floating with no gravity um but yeah it was a really cool really epic moment there visual like a verbal visual that i got there was nice uh do nothing voldemort shrieked to the death eaters and harry saw his red eyes why with astonishment this is what the fifth time we've heard about his red eyes (laughs) we still don't get that in the movie but uh uh, his uh, red eyes were wide with astonishment at what was happening. They saw him fighting to break the thread of light still connecting his wand with Harry's. But Harry held onto his wand more tightly with both hands, and the golden thread remained unbroken. Do nothing unless I command you, Voldemort shouted to the Death Eaters. And then an unearthly and beautiful sound filled the air. It was coming from every thread of the light spun web vibrating around Harry and Voldemort. It was a sound Harry recognized though he had heard it only once before in his life. A phoenix song. It was a sound of hope. It was the most beautiful and welcome thing he had ever heard in his life. He felt as though the song were inside him instead of just around him. It was a sound he connected with Dumbledore, and it was almost as if a friend were speaking into his ear. Don't break the connection. I know, Harry told the music. I know I mustn't, but no sooner had he thought it then the thing became much harder to do. His wand began to vibrate more powerfully than ever, and now the beam between him and Voldemort changed too. It was as though large beads of light were sliding up and down the thread connecting the wands. Harry felt his wand give a shudder under his hand as the light beads began to slide slowly and steadily his way. The directions of the beam's movement was now toward him from Voldemort, and he felt his wand shudder angrily. And as the closest beam of light moved nearer to Harry's wand tip, the wood beneath his fingers began to grow so hot that he feared it would burst into flames. The closer the bead moved, the harder Harry's wand vibrated. 
He was sure his wand would not survive the contact with it, and it felt as though it was about to shatter under his finger. He concentrated every last particle of his mind upon forcing the bead back towards Voldemort, his ears full of the phoenix song, his eyes furious, fixed, and slowly, very slowly, the beads quivered to a halt. And then just as slowly, they began to move the other way. And it was Voldemort's wand that was vibrating extra hard now. Voldemort, who looked astonished and almost fearful. One of the beads of light was quivering inches from the tip of Voldemort's wand, and Harry didn't understand why he was doing it, didn't know what it might achieve, but he now concentrated as he had never done in his life on forcing that bead of light right back into Voldemort's wand, and slowly, very slowly, it moved along the golden thread, trembled for a moment, and then it connected. Now, before we get into what happens here when it connects, this reminds me of like the big epic battle with Goku and Frieza when they're both at full power, and they put the blasts together, and like you're trying to move it closer to the other person, and the other person gets stronger, moves it back towards you, because you know whoever it ends up on is going to be exploded and get the worst off of the, of the charge here. That's what it seemed like it was going to do when I read it for the first time. I like the way that they went with it instead of what comes out of it, so it was really ingenious writing by J.K. Rowling. I really appreciate it. But it just gave me that visual of like two energy balls just fighting back and forth between each other to see like who was the stronger of the two. So is that, is that kind of the way you saw it too? <laughs> yeah, actually I might even play a quick clip just so the audience can see how similar this is. It's actually a different fight scene it reminded me of in Dragon Ball Z. It reminded me of the climax of the Cell Saga where Cell is like sitting there with the big Kamehameha wave and they've collided and then Gohan's asking for like Goku's help from like the other realm and he's like, now's your chance! And Cell's sitting there, he's like, you fool! Don't you realize you're up against the perfect weapon? And then you have like Vegeta from the back that shoots in everything as everything's about to happen in a minute. And he's like, why won't you die? <laughs> and they're just going back and forth. That's literally what it seemed like, man. It was it was uh, literally a reminiscent deja vu moment for me of stepping back into my fourth grade shoes of when Team Gohan fought Cell in the Cell games. That's awesome. Uh, I don't know. The showing a clip might be difficult because, you know, with... All the crazy things with copyright in today's world, they might they might take it out. Uh, but I like the yeah, the, 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 the verbal visualization you just gave was perfect. I honestly, yeah, I think what you gave was even better than what I gave with the cell and Gohan thing because of the help that Gohan received um, behind it. So great, great uh, alliteration there of, of um, allusion, I should say, of of how they are connected and how it's similar. So let's go ahead and continue on. At once, Voldemort's wand began to emit echoing screams of pain. Then Voldemort's red eyes widened with shock. A dense, smoky hand flew out of the tip and vanished. The ghost of the hand he had made Wormtail. More shouts of pain, and then something much larger began to blossom from Voldemort's wand tip. A great, grayish something that looked as though it were made of the solidest, densest smoke. It was a head, now a chest and arms. The torso of Cedric Diggory. If ever Harry might have released his wand from shock, it would have been then. But instinct kept him clutching his wand tightly so that the golden light thread remained unbroken, even though the thick gray ghost of Cedric Diggory, was it a ghost? It looked so solid, emerged in its entirety from the end of Voldemort's wand as though it was squeezing itself out of a very narrow tunnel. And this shade of Cedric stood up and looked up and down the golden thread of light and spoke. Hold on, Harry. 
it said. Its voice was distant and echoing, and Harry looked at Voldemort. His wide, red eyes were still shocked. He had no more expected this than Harry had, and very dimly, Harry heard the frightened yells of the Death Eaters prowling around the edges of the Golden Dome. More screams of pain from the wand, and then something else emerged from its tip. The dense shadow of a second head, followed by arms and torso, an old man Harry had seen only in a dream, was now pushing himself out of the end of the wand just as Cedric is done. And his ghost, or his shadow, or whatever it was, fell next to Cedric's and surveyed Harry and Voldemort and the golden web and the connected wands with mild surprise, leaning on its walking stick. He was a real wizard then, the old man said, his eyes on Voldemort. Killed me, that one did. You fight him, boy. But already, yet another head was emerging, and this head, gray as a smoky statue, was a woman's. Harry's both arms shaking now as he fought to keep his wand still, saw her drop to the ground and straightening up like the others, staring. The shadow of Bertha Jorkins surveyed the battle before with, eye with wide eyes. "'Don't let go now!' she cried. Her voice echoed like Cedric's as though from very far away. "'Don't let him get you, Harry. Don't let go!' She and the other two shadowy figures began to pace around the inner walls of the golden web while the Death Eaters flitted around the outside of it, and Voldemort's dead victims whispered as they circled the duelers, whispered words of encouragement to Harry, and hissed words Harry couldn't hear to Voldemort. And now another head was emerging from the tip of Voldemort's wand, and Harry knew when he saw it who it would be. He knew as though he had expected it from the moment when Cedric had appeared from the wand, knew because the woman was the one he thought of more than any other tonight. The smoky shadow of a young woman with long hair fell to the ground as Bertha had done, straightened up and looked at him. And Harry, his arm shaking madly now, looked back into the ghostly face of his mother. Your father's coming, she said quietly. Hold on for your father. It will be all right. Hold on. And he came. First his head, then his body. Tall and untidy-haired like Harry, the smoky, shadowy form of James Potter blossomed from the end of Voldemort's wand, fell to the ground, and straightened like his wife. He walked close to Harry, looking down at him, and he spoke in the same distant, echoing voice as the others, but quietly, so that Voldemort, his face now livid with fear, as his victims prowled around him, could not hear. When the connection is broken, we will linger only for a moment. But we will give you time. You must get to the port key. It will return you to Hogwarts. Do you understand, Harry? Yes, Harry gasped, fighting now to keep a hold on his wand, which was slipping and sliding beneath his fingers. Harry, whispered the figure of Cedric, take my body back, will you? Take my body back to my parents. I will, said Harry, his face screwed up with the effort of holding his wand. Do it now, whispered his father. Be ready to run do it now. Now! Harry yelled, and he didn't think as he could have held on for another moment anyways. He pulled his wand upward with an almighty wrench, and the golden thread broke. The cage of light vanished. The phoenix song died, but the shattery figures of Voldemort's victims did not disappear. They were closing in upon Voldemort, shielding Harry from his gaze. As Harry ran it, he had never run before in his life. Knocking two stunned Death Eaters aside as he passed, he zigzagged behind the headstones, feeling their curses following him, hearing them hit the headstones. He was dodging curses and graves, pelting towards Cedric's body, no longer aware of the pain in his leg. His whole body concentrated on what he had to do. 
Stun him! He heard Voldemort scream. Ten feet from Cedric, Harry dived behind a marble angel to avoid the jets of red light, and he saw the tip of its wing shatter as the spells hit it. Gripping his wand more tightly, he dashed out from behind the angel. Impidimenta! He bellowed. He pointed his wand wildly over his shoulder at the Death Eaters running at him. From a muffled yell, he thought he had stopped at least one of them, but there was no time to stop and look. He jumped over the cup and dived as he heard more wands blast behind him. More jets of light flew over his head, stretching out his hand to grab Cedric's arm. Stand aside! I will kill him! He is mine! shrieked Voldemort. And Harry's hand closed on Cedric's wrist. One tombstone stood between him and Voldemort, but Cedric was too heavy to carry, and the cup was out of reach. And Voldemort's red eyes flamed in the darkness. Harry saw his mouth curl into a smile, saw him raise his wand. Accio! Harry yelled, pointing at the Triwizard Cup. It flew into the air and soared towards him. Harry caught it by the handle. He heard Voldemort's scream of fury at the same moment that he felt the jerk behind his navel them at the port he had worked. It was speeding him away from in a whirl of wind and color, and Cedric along with him. They were going back. Now's your chance! (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the big duel between Harry and Voldemort. This is crazy stuff here, because this is stuff that we've never seen before, and we're learning about for the first time. These two wands connected, and we'll learn about exactly what that means here in the coming chapters that we're going to get into. But imagine fighting, like, you're already, you know, shocked and weary as it is of being hit with the Cruciatus Curse, him trying to assault your mind with the Imperius Curse... Like, eventually, you just wanted to be over. You just did Expelliarmus to fight standing straight up. And all of a sudden, now you've got a chance. You've got this golden light of thread. And all of a sudden, these people that Voldemort's killed coming out of this wand. And they're whispering advice to him. You know, and I actually have questions about that. Like, how the heck would did Harry's dad know that the cup was a port key that would take him back to Hogwarts? I, I don't know that. He's literally a shadow and echo his former self. He should not know anything about that. But we'll get pa- we'll, we'll look past that for now. And just, like, thinking about how much you know because he didn't get a chance to stop and talk or anything like literally to his parents i'm talking about they came out of the tip of the wand told him the advice what they're going to do hey break the connection we're going to get in front of him block his view get to the cop as soon as he can so like he must have had some sort of mixed feelings of like man i kind of want to stay a bit longer to like you know this is as close as i've been to my real life parents you know since i was one years old but then at other flip of the coin he's like Damn, dude, I'm still outnumbered 30 to 1 by a bunch of Death Eaters like who, you know, were charged with killing people and Voldemort who kills people for fun. Like, I need to get the hell out of here. You know, so it just it was a great moment. It showed again, Harry has that intangible it factor, like Tim Tebow with his run with the Broncos, somehow winning games with throwing for less than hundred yards. But he's got that magical it factor that gets him out of these situations, man. Uh yeah, get he's luckier than any boy that I've ever I've ever read about, that's for sure. But he's, uh, he's officially not defeated Voldemort, but he escaped Voldemort with his life, which is more than Voldemort expected. And it, it actually ruins Voldemort's plans to an extent. Go watch that clip, guys, because it's so close. It's not even funny. Like It makes you wonder if she like secretly had it in the background like one of her kids were watching it at the time when she was writing this book. It reminded me of when you said that, like, no chance... Because Cell goes, you have no chance! You have no chance! And then uh, you have Goku that's dead. Just like James Potter, his father is like, now's your chance! And then all you hear is, ah! 
<laughs> it just like takes him out, man. And that's exactly what it reminded me of. Like when he's like, now, <laughs> just like ran for his life towards the porky. It was, uh, it was one of those epic climactic moments where if you read it in the book, you're on the edge of your seat. Like even if you start reading it at one in the morning, you're like, well, I guess I'm not going to bed until two o'clock because I'm not going to sleep till I finish this damn thing because it's so climactic on the edge of your seat. You just saw this massive ass, uh, I guess you would say like golden cage kind of thing that like surrounded them that collided and then all of a sudden they're going back and forth with the like who's going to be overtaken by whom right and uh it was just like you said like the whole thing was climactic and then even right when you're thinking like okay harry's got this you forget like there's 30 death eaters to one like how is he getting to safety here with some ghosts saving him from another realm and uh yeah it was it was awesome man uh this book is absolutely fantastic uh it was probably it's one of my top favorite most climactic moments uh and you know it i want to say it doesn't get any better than this but it does <laughs> but it's like pretty <laughs> it's a pretty amazing moment and with that i'll turn it back over to you man perfect that brings us into our next chapter, Veritas Sierum. And this, remember what Veritas Sierum is, guys. It's the truth potion that Snape had threatened Harry with earlier in the book. And so the name of the chapter itself is a bit of a foreshadow about what's to come. So <clears throat> I, will, I will only do a couple bullet points up until a certain point. Uh, I would say until page, let's see, 675. So... The first four pages of this chapter, I got bullet points, but then from page 675, I have to read the remainder of it because it's all it's all everything coming together and understanding why it happens. So, to to start out, uh, they're back at Hogwarts now, page 670, right? So, Harry tells Dumbledore that Voldemort's back. That's the first thing he he tells him right away. There's some details missing that he probably should have stated that Harry realizes later on. Shoot, I should have said that. And this is one of those things that. We do talk about, and we'll talk about more next week, but that the movie actually portrayed better than the book did is when Harry returned to Hogwarts with Cedric's body and uh, Cedric's dad finds out what happened. That was, like, I, I, I'm getting, literally, like, if you guys can see on camera, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Like, like that like was some really, moment. <laughs> yeah, like, it was, yeah, right, but, like, it was really powerful, and it was really great to... Uh, to see like that anguish and put it into like I I still feel it I still feel it in my skin man I got the goosebumps but um, Fudge is the one that realizes Cedric's dead like my God Dumbledore he's dead like <laughs> you know and so Dumbledore tells Harry like so basically what needs to happen right now is they're trying to quell the crowd everyone sees Harry return when Fudge had said that you know the boy is dead. Like, everyone around him starts screaming and freaking out. Don't, like, Fudge does not know how to handle a crowd at all. Like, he turns all into hysteria and, like, imme like immediate panic. And Dumbledore now has got to figure out, like, how the heck can I qu calm the situation? So, he's like, Harry, stay put. I don't want you to move. I'm going to come back for you. We need to figure out everything that happened. And so, while, that ha while he's trying to, like, you know, head off Cedric's parents from coming down and the crowd of people surrounding him, you know, of, of their body... He starts getting pulled and like pushed and pulled upwards by somebody, taking him away from the outside of the maze. Now, the first thing I remember that I re that made it click in my head as a as a kid reading this book. As an adult, you kind of see where it was gonna go, anyways. But 
this is the first the, the first click in my brain that I was like, aha, this is this is what this is where it all led to, is when Moody on page six hundred and seventy three, he calls uh, um, Voldemort the Dark Lord. No one, no one in the good side of the the battle. I'll say like, no one ever calls Voldemort the Dark Lord. It's either you know who or he who must not be named or Lord Voldemort. No one ever calls him the Dark Lord except who, the Death Eaters, his followers, right? So that being said, Mad Eye Moody ends up bringing Harry to his office, locks Harry in behind him, and. Harry at that point at page 674 he realizes he's like oh damn it I need I need to tell Dumbledore there's a Death Eater at Hogwarts and this is where I'm going to take up from the chapter and read through it because this is where it all comes out the the this is where we get the truth after all I want to say something real quick yeah that you skipped over I mean it's not really important but so when Dumbledore is trying to basically like pull Harry off of Cedric so like in the film this is like one of those iconic lines, but it, I gotta bring this up because it's done so wrong, in my opinion. So I wanna read this part real quick. Uh, so Dumbledore is like trying to get Harry off and he like whispers it and he just goes, he's back, he's back, he's back, Voldemort. And then that's when like, you know, Dumbledore's trying to pull him off. In the film, like, I don't know why they chose to do it this way, but you had Harry that was like, he's back! He's back! Like, please explain to me why they did it that way. Like, it changes the entire scene. Like, it's supposed to be almost like an eerie scene. Like, at least this is what I got from it, is Harry, like, can't even believe, like, what just happened and uh, Cedric's dead in front of him and he's still almost in total shock, like, get off of me, like, freaking out, like, almost, like, to the point you're pet not petrified, but, like, anything will make you amped and startled. Like, in the film, he's just, like, I, you know, I don't know, and this isn't Daniel Radcliffe's fault, he's a good actor, it's, like, the way they directed it, like, they love Harry in these crying scenes, like, in Azkaban, we talked about it, and he was like, and I'm going to kill him. And, okay, like, even though you've never even met this person before about Sirius Black, and I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill him. It's like he was holding on to Cedric. He's like, he's back. He's back. Okay. Okay, man. Like, let's, no. This isn't what happened here. Like, this is a simple scene. That is a very iconic moment of the book. And I don't want to say they entirely ruined it with this, but it's like, that's a simple fix you can do. All you literally have to say is tell Daniel Radcliffe, okay, this is like a simple scene. If you've ever been startled and amped before, like you're so shocked about the situation, that's what I want you to do. But no, he's like, it's like they added Escape the Fate Band or, you know, I love my chemical romance, but it's like, they were like, so long and good night. It's like, I think what they wanted to do was show emotion. That's what I think it was. I think they, like, I don't like it. I don't like what the movie did, but I think what they wanted to do is like, it's like a a show of emotion to add drama to like, that's what, that's what movies do, right? They make everything dramatic. So like I think that's what it was. Like, that's what must have been their thought process. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean it was a good thing that they did. But I think that might be why they did it that way is because it adds drama to the moment. Yelling and crying. Like 
I guess. That's but the does only that option. really add drama, though? Like, no. if you go back to Silence of the Lambs with Anthony Hopkins, or even go back to Westworld that we covered, I don't ever recall Anthony Hopkins crying on screen, and he was still remotely terrifying. If I you think ask it's me. because, like, like, well, I don't Harry's, know, man. Harry's not meant to be terrifying. I think what they thought of is it's like, hey, Listen, you know, this is a... For, they, they must... I guess I'm going to make this point a couple times throughout this series when we talk about the movies and the differences between the films. It's like, I don't... I really don't believe that the directors read the Harry Potter books. And so what I think is, like, they figured... Like, they heard that Harry comes back with Cedric and, like, hey, he announces Voldemort's back. Well, in their mind, they must have been like, well, what's a better way than a 14-year-old boy full of anguish that just watched a kid get killed? What's okay. a better way to have him come back than screaming and crying like ah like you know what I mean that's what I think I yeah. think they were told what happened and they're like oh okay this is, must have been this is the best way for us to do it like it like that's yeah. what I think but it sucks <laughs> I mean it, may, it makes sense I mean and not to take that part away from you I don't want to take that moment away I was just trying to make a point there like I'm with you it's simple fixes they could have done I mean we'll get into differences next week with like major fixes they needed but like simple fixes like that change almost the entire tone of the scene yeah agreed like you put it perfectly you said it so well you said it was supposed to be like an eerie like in shock like like whisper moment he couldn't believe what had just happened to him and he could barely put it into words remember like he was still like clutching onto cedric's arm and like not hold up not letting it go like he was like 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 Mm -hmm. he was like really in shock and it does it did change the whole mood of it it's like it's one of those things that that's why i don't believe that the directors and producers or writers read the book. I don't. Yes. Or if they, they did, back they skimmed. The, I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill him. Add All right, drama to you're, it. you're 15. <laughs> <laughs> okay, off to you, man. I'll let you take it back on that note, brother. Perfect. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it from the part where uh, Harry realizes there's a Death Eater at Hogwarts, and then, then I'm going to read it through to the end of the chapter there, and we'll discuss along the way. So there's a Death Eater at Hogwarts. There's a Death Eater here. They put my name in the Goblet of Fire. They made sure I got through to the end. Harry tried to get up, but Moody pushed him back down. I know who the Death Eater is, he said quietly. Karkaroff, said Harry wildly. Where is he? Have you got him? Is he locked up? Kakaroff, said Moody with an odd laugh. Kakaroff fled tonight when he felt the dark mark burn upon his arm. He betrayed too many faithful supporters of the Dark Lord to wish to meet them. But I doubt he will get far. The Dark Lord has his ways of tracking his enemies. Kakaroff's gone? He ran away? But then, he, he didn't put my name in the goblet? No, said Moody slowly. No, he didn't. It was I who did that. Harry heard, but didn't believe. No, you didn't. You didn't do that. You can't have done. I assure you I did, said Moody, and his magical eyes swung around him, fixed upon the door, and Harry knew he was making sure that no one was outside it. At the same time, Moody drew out his wand and pointed it at Harry. He forgave them, then, he said. The Death Eaters who went free? The ones who escaped Azkaban? What? said Harry. He was looking at Moody. He was looking at the wand Moody was pointing at him. This was a bad joke. It had to be. And let's stop here for a second. This guy just fought off Voldemort. This 14-year-old boy just fought off Voldemort, got back home, like thought he was going to die. He's probably pissing his pants. And then as soon as he gets back, <laughs> what, what happens now? Like his whole world gets flipped upside down. This teacher that would came to be one of his favorite ones... Like, ends up being, like, like threatening him with one point. Like, he's like, that's why he's like, it's got to be a bad joke. I literally just fought Voldemort. Now, like, what's happening here? <laughs> like, it's just, can you imagine, like, the confusion and, like, the, 
the anguish, like, like the just helplessness feeling he must have been going through. Like, dude, I just got through this. Like, like what's going on? You know what I mean? Dude. Yeah, it, it's like, uh, it's almost like if you just hit a streak of bad events, like in one week, right? You know, like when you're like, man, I always bring up like the test situation, but say you studied all night for a test, been studying for weeks, you get on that test, which I know like everyone's been at this point before. <laughs> you get on that test and you know maybe like three questions and you're like i guess i studied the wrong shit like what just happened i've been preparing for this the whole time i thought i just took down exactly what i needed to and then from left field <laughs> just kick hit in the words of the hangover in the face it's in <laughs> your face yeah and, and uh, this is when you I almost feel like this wasn't in the book or anything or the movie, so don't get me wrong. Like, I'm just making this part up. But, like, almost, like, in visual, visualize, like, the sweat dripping down Harry's face. He's like, and how am I getting out of this one? <laughs> exactly. Crazy, Agreed. man. So, continue on. He says, I asked you, said Moody quietly, whether he forgave the scum who never even went to look for him. Those treacherous cowards who wouldn't even rave Azkaban for him. The faithless, worthless bits of filth who were brave enough to caver around in masks at the Quidditch World Cup, but fled at the sight of the dark mark when I fired it into the sky. You fired? What, what are you talking about? I told you, Harry. I told you. If there's one thing I hate more than any other, it's a Death Eater who walked free. They turned their backs on my master when he needed them most. I expected him to punish them. I expected him to torture them. Tell me he hurt them, Harry. Moody's face was suddenly lit with an insane smile. Tell me he told them that I, I alone remain faithful, prepared to risk everything to deliver him the one thing he wanted above all. You. You didn't. It, it can't be you. Who put your name in the Goblet of Fire under the name of a different school? I did. Who frightened off every person I thought might try to hurt you or prevent you from winning the tournament? I did. Who nudged Hagrid into showing you the dragons? I did. Who helped you see the only way you could beat the dragons? I did. Moody's magical eye had now left the door. It was fixed upon Harry. His lopsided mouth leered more widely now than ever. It hasn't been easy, Harry, guiding you through these tasks without arousing suspicion. I have had to use every ounce of cunning I possess so that my hand would not be de de detectable in your success. Dumbledore would have been very suspicious had you managed everything too easily. As long as you got into that maze, preferably with a decent head start, then I knew. I would have a chance of getting rid of the other champions and leaving your, way to the path, your path to the cup clear. But I also had to contend with your stupidity. The second task. That was when I was most afraid we would fail. I was keeping watch on you, Potter. I knew you hadn't worked out the egg's clue, so I had to give you another hint. You didn't, said Harry hoarsely. Cedric gave me the clue. Who told Cedric to open it underwater? I did. I trusted that he would pass the information on to you. Decent people are so easy to manipulate, Potter. I was sure Cedric would want to repay you for telling about the dragons, and so he did. But even then, Potter... Even then, you seem likely to fail. I was watching all the time, all those hours in the library. Didn't you realize that the book you needed was in your dormitory all along? 
I planted it there early on, when I gave it to the Longbottom boy, don't you remember? Magical water plants of the Mediterranean. It would have told you all you needed to know about Gillyweed. I expected you to ask everyone and anyone you could for help. And Longbottom would have told you in an instant. But you did not. You did not. <laughs> you, you have a streak. <laughs> you have not confessed. <laughs> you have a streak of pride and independence that might have ruined it all. So what could I do? Feed you information from another innocent source. You told me at the Yule Ball a house elf called Davi had given you a Christmas present. So I called the elf to the staff room to collect some robes for cleaning. I staged a loud conversation with Professor McGonagall about the hostages who had been taken and whether Potter would think to use Gillyweed. And your little elf friend ran straight to Snape's office and hurried to find you. Moody's wand was still pointing directly at Harry's heart. Over his shoulder, foggy shapes were moving in the faux glass on the wall. You were in that lake so long, Potter, I thought you would drown. But luckily, Dumbledore took your idiocy for nobility and marked you high for it. I breathed again. You had an easier time of it than you should have in that maze tonight, of course. I was patrolling around it, able to see through the outer hedges, able to curse many obstacles out of your way. I stunned Fleur Delacour as she passed. I put the imperious curse on Crumb so that he would finish Diggory and leave your path to the cup clear. Harry stared at Moody. He just didn't see how this could be. Dumbledore's friend, the famous Auror, the one who had caught so many Death Eaters. It made no sense. No sense at all. The foggy shapes in the faux glass were sharpening, had become more distinct. Harry could see the outlines of three people over Moody's shoulder moving closer and closer. But Moody wasn't watching them. His magical eye was upon Harry. The Dark Lord didn't manage to kill you, Potter. And he so wanted to, whispered Moody. Imagine how he will reward me when he finds I have done it for him. I gave you to him, the thing he needed above all to regenerate. And then I killed you for him. I will be honored beyond all other Death Eaters. I will be his dearest, closest supporter. Closer than a son. Moody's normal eye was bulging. The magical eye fixed upon Harry. The door was barred and Harry knew he would never reach his own wand in time. The Dark Lord and I, said Moody, and he looked completely insane now, towering over Harry, leering down at him, have much in common. Both of us, for instance, had very disappointing fathers, very disappointing indeed. Both of us suffered the indignity, Harry, of being named after those fathers. And both of us had the pleasure, the very great pleasure, of killing our fathers to ensure the continued rise of the Dark Order. You're mad, Harry said. You're mad. Mad, am I? His voice wide, rising uncontrollably. We'll see. We'll see who's mad now the Dark Lord has returned with me at his side. He is back, Harry Potter. You did not conquer him. And now I conquer you. And Moody raised his wand, opened his mouth. Harry plunged his hand into his robes. Stupefy! There was a blinding flash of red light. And with a great splintering and crashing, the door of Moody's office was blasted apart. Moody was thrown backwards onto the office floor, and Harry, still staring at the place where Moody's face had been, saw Albus Dumbledore, Professor Snape, and Professor McGonagall looking back at him out of the faux glass. He looked around and saw the three of them standing in the doorway. Dumbledore in front, wand outstretched. And at that moment... Harry fully understood for the first time why people said Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort had ever feared. 
The look upon Dumbledore's face as he stared down into the unconscious form of Mad-Eye Moody was more terrible than Harry could have ever imagined. There was no benign smile upon Dumbledore's face, no twinkle in the eyes behind the spectacles. There was a cold fury in every line of the ancient face, a sense of power radiated from Dumbledore as though he was giving off burning heat. And I'll pause there, bro, because I know you were talking about that. This is that moment where you're mentioning Dumbledore kind of shows you why people respect him as a wizard. Because we hear about later on his his conquest as a, as a younger man of the first dark wizard he defeats. I won't say any spoilers yet. So we hear about it. But, you know, we almost think like, oh, he's just a wise old man now. And he's giving the advice so right. other people can go on beyond that. But this shows like... He he's still he's still the guy, man. He's still that dude that you don't want to mess with when the chips are on the table, man. So talk a little bit about you know that moment that you were mentioning in the beginning of of uh, Dumbledore showing like his true his true power. Yeah, man. You sure you're cool with that? I didn't yeah, want to. Yeah. This is your book, man. So I'm not trying to step. Take on it. Yeah, no, because you you brought it up, and that's a really good point. That this is where we really see Dumbledore for the first time show his his abilities and like how he can turn into like if you push anybody far enough they'll flip the switch and you're gonna wish they hadn't like you don't want to mess with angry Dumbledore man so talk a little bit about that yeah it's um actually I got a kind of a funny phrase that my dad used to tell me growing up you know when you really uh, if you push it and push it and push it and my dad's like one of those like very calm laid back guys like never really says anything until like finally like if he texts me something like it's something like very like it has to be something very important uh well and my mom's that way as far as like my mom talks a lot and is like really funny and outgoing but so she like never gets mad whereas like if i mess something up like i knew i was gonna have to like my dad's gonna have to deal with me when i was a little kid but my dad told me and this actually it's regarding my mom but my mom in this situation would be like albus dumbledore my dad goes you can make your dad mad, but if you made your mom mad, you really done messed up. <laughs> like, you messed up now. Uh, and this, uh, the moment I'm going to talk about here, uh, the reason I want to talk about this for just a second is I think this is really part of the reason, like a big part of the reason, why the next book is my personal favorite. Um, because you do kind of see uh, during the climax of that book of this side of Dumbledore really takes over in the next book but uh, just to give you a little glimpse of it here um, so it it says here I want to make sure I didn't um, that don't uh, step on your toes or anything but okay, well, I, so. I read the moment of him busting through the door and like and how the power emanated from him and he already knocked Moody unconscious I was basically wondering like I just wanted you to, to mention like talk about you know how that moment is important to the series of like this is like the flip of the switch of like the second side of Dumbledore. I just wanted you to talk about that before because I'm still going to continue on with that. I just wanted because you're the one that brought it up in the beginning talking about how like you, Dumbledore's been portrayed as one way, right? This calm, yeah. like this calm guy who always seems cool and collected and in the moment, never really shouts, just always kind of knows what to do. And this is this is the moment where you see a whole different side of him. And like your yeah. point, talking about going further into next book, uh, his, his abilities when, like I said, when all the chips are pushed to the center of the table, 
you don't want to bet against Albus Dumbledore, man. So. Yeah, I do want to read this paragraph because this paragraph is what describes it. Like, it, is that it the one it. I just wrote? The one that at that moment, all the way through, down to where he says, "Giving off burning heat." Is that the one? Because I just yeah. read it. Yeah, I, 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 I just read it. You I just le- I re- read. Yeah, at that moment, Harry fully understood where for he the first said time. spectacles and everything, right? Yeah, I heard you say that. Um, but I was talking about where, as far as like McGonagall. Uh, okay. Calls Potter to like come along. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, go ahead. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Go ahead. Take take that part. Yep. Yeah. Because I everyone knows Dumbledore can get mad, but this like the reason I bring this up is because he even stands up against his own people. Like this is where Dumbledore shows. No, I'm not just going along with what the nice thing to do is at the moment. Yeah. So McGonagall um, says, "Come along, Potter." She whispered. The thin line of her mouth was twitching though she was about to cry come along hospital wing no said dumbledore sharply dumbledore he ought to look at him he's been through enough tonight he will stay minerva because he needs to understand said dumbledore curtly understanding is the first step to acceptance and only with acceptance can there be recovery he needs to know who has put him through this ordeal he has suffered tonight and why so that's my point i was making um because it, it he doesn't just do the normal here dumbledore and of course you know josh told you about as far as you can really see that fire in dumbledore at this point but it even goes a step further to where of course mcgonagall if you really think of it this way and this is really breaking down um you know their history there where you can see that connection I've never even seen a moment where he would ever, you know, if McGonagall said something or suggested something, of course, he's always going to support her. At this moment, he turns, doesn't turn on his own people, but he takes charge. Like, he is the headmaster at this point, and he is telling everybody, you know, I hate to say this, we are a democracy, but at this moment, we are a monarchy, because I know what's best and you don't. And this is really where you see that moment of Dumbledore stands out, in my opinion, because it's taking it a step further. It's not just the guy, and I hate to bring up the film, but you know, in the film, it tried to give, I feel like that's what they were trying to do, is trying to push this moment, um, like this side of Dumbledore, but throughout the whole film, which I think was the wrong way to do it. But um, I think that's more what that actor was trying to do, so not putting him down or anything, but like this is really where it tells a difference it's not as much just you know you really did like he has that fury you know no one's ever seen before him of course but now it's it's like for instance like the president or whoever's in charge of your country you want to do what your advisors are suggesting or it's it the best way to describe it and i hate bringing up game of thrones because we're past that but it's that moment where my girl Daenerys Targaryen in season seven looked at Tyrion and says, I have three dragons, enough with the clever plans. <laughs> like, that's exactly what Dumbledore is doing here. And with that, I'll let you take it back, man. Yeah, and it's in, this is like, I like the, what you said, like, this is where he, he was sharp, because he even said, said, said Dumbledore sharply. Dumbledore doesn't really say anything sharply. He's, he's you're like normally a passive guy. And the thing is, like, it's not so much that he goes along with, like, the council or they say something and he agrees with mm-hmm. it. It's like, even if he does disagree, it's more of a conversation, like, okay, well, let's discuss right. why we disagree about this. This time, he's like, no, 
this is what's happening and I don't care. This is what needs to happen because this is the right way to go about it. So you're going to have to deal with it, Professor McGonagall. And then even a little bit later, to your point, it even continues on uh, in, the, in a couple chapters here where like Harry just like wants to be done with the day. He wants to like, you know, just go to sleep and forget about the events. And Dumbledore's like, no, you will. Not, and I don't want to get ahead of that. But like, again, he, he, he takes the bull by the horns. You really see him for the first time really be in the driver's seat of okay now it's time it's my time to shine like i gave everyone their chances over the other books to kind of you know maneuver their own ways and live their own lives yeah. but now the like like the shit's hit the fan voldemort's back everyone step the hell aside it's my time yeah like, it's like so. uh sorry not to interrupt you here i just wanted to bring up a point that relates to what you were saying in our previous episodes on this remember how we were talking about like in sorcerer's stone or like chamber of secrets you know dumbledore has that tendency to show up like at the very last minute to save the day right this is that moment where he really takes charge here almost like how like i don't think dumbledore ever had room to grow it's not like hermione but remember when hermione punched malfoy in the face like it's similar to that moment just in a different aspect more for dumbledore but he's he's showing here that unfortunately i can't be mr nice guy to you right now like I don't have time for it like we actually have to we have business to take care of and we've waited to the last minute and now I'm not gonna let anything else stand in my way yeah I mean the thing is like he did wait to the last minute again here too remember he was like they, right. Moody was about to Moody was about to curse Harry right in front of him and, like the last second they burst open the door and and knock Moody out of the way like yeah. so he still is on a streak of showing up to the last second but As I like, said waited to the last minute <laughs> all the yeah. time every time but, like no, every so single true, time man, it, yeah, so that that was my little paragraph I just wanted to read there because yeah, I, I think it's a small paragraph, but it, it packs a powerful punch in a different way where most people would say, oh, well, you know, the paragraph before where, of course, you saw the fury in his eyes and everything, of course, because it's descriptive. But this is really the moment, in my opinion, that shows the difference there. Like, it's not a conversation. This isn't a this isn't of let me hear about why you think this is right so I can teach you why this is wrong. This is I don't have time to teach you. Shit has hit the fan, just like you said, and now I have to stick up for what is right. And that's that's what's going on. All right, let's jump back in here. Uh, because uh, when he said he needs to know who has put him through the ordeal he suffered tonight and why, that continues on to where he says, Moody, Harry said. He was still in the state of complete disbelief. How could it have been Moody? This is not Alistair Moody, said Dumbledore quietly. You have never known Alistair Moody. The real Moody would not have removed you from my sight after what happened tonight. The moment he took you, I knew and I followed. Dumbledore bent down over Moody's limp form and put a hand inside his robes. He pulled out Moody's hip flask and a set of keys on a ring. Then he turned Professors McGonagall and Snape. Severus, please fetch me the strongest truth potion you possess, and then go down to the kitchens and bring up the house elf called Winky. Minerva, kindly go down to Hagrid's house where you will find a large black dog sitting in the pumpkin patch. Take the dog up to my office, tell him I will be with him shortly, then come back here. If either Snape or McGonagall found these instructions peculiar, they hid their confusion. Both turned at once and left the office. Dumbledore walked over to the trunk with seven locks, fitted the first key in the lock, and opened it. It contained a mass of spellbooks. Dumbledore closed the trunk, placed the second key in the second lock, and opened the trunk again. 
The spell books had vanished this time, and it contained now an assortment of broken sneakoscopes, some forms of parchment and quills, and what looked like a silvery invisibility cloak. Harry watched, astounded, as Dumbledore placed the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth key in their respective locks, reopening the trunk each time and revealing different contents each time. Then he placed the seventh key in the lock, threw open the lid, and Harry let out a cry of amazement. He was looking down into a kind of pit, an underground room, and lying on the floor some ten feet below, apparently fast asleep, thin and starved in appearance, was the real Mad-Eye Moody. His wooden leg was gone, the socket that should have held the magical eye was looking empty beneath its lids, and the chunk of his grizzled hair were missing. Harry stared thunderstruck between the sleeping Moody in the trunk and the unconscious Moody lying on the floor of our office. Dumbledore climbed into the trunk, lowered himself, and landed lightly on the floor beside the sleeping Moody and bent over him. Stunned, controlled by the imperious curse, very weak, he said. Of course they would have needed to keep him alive. Harry, throw down the imposter's cloak. He's freezing. Madame Pomfrey will need to see him, but he seems in no immediate danger. And Harry did as he was told. Dumbledore covered Moody in the cloak, tucked it around him, and clambered out of the trunk, and then he picked up the hip flask that stood upon the desk, unscrewed it, and turned it over. A thick, glutinous liquid splattered onto the office floor. Polyjuice potion, Harry said Dumbledore. You see the simplicity of it? And the brilliance. For Moody never does drink except from his hip flask, and he's well known for it. The imposter needed, of course, to keep the real Moody close by, so that he could continue making the potion. You see his hair? Dumbledore looked at the Moody on the trunk. The imposter has been cutting it off all year. Do you see where it's uneven? But I think, in the excitement of tonight, our fake Moody might have forgotten to take it as frequently as he should have done on the hour, every hour. We shall see. Dumbledore pulled out the chair at the desk and sat down upon it, his eyes fixed upon the unconscious Moody on the floor. Harry stared at him too. Minutes passed in silence. Then before Harry's very eyes, the face of the man on the floor began to change. Scars were disappearing, skin was becoming smoother, the mangled nose became whole and started to shrink. The long mane of grizzled gray hair was withdrawing into the scalp and turning the color of straw, and suddenly, with a loud clunk, the wooden leg fell away as a normal leg regrew in its place, and the next moment, the magical eyeball popped out of the man's face as a real eyeball replaced it, and it rolled away across the floor and continued to swivel in every direction. Harry saw a man lying before him, pale-skinned, slightly freckled, with a mop of fair hair. He knew who it was. He had seen him in Dumbledore's pensive, had watched him being led away from the court by Dementors trying to convince Mr. Crouch that he was innocent. But he was lined around the eyes now. He looked much older. There were hurried footsteps outside the corridor, and Snape had returned with Winky at his heels. Professor McGonagall was right behind them. Crouch, said Snape, stopping dead in the doorway. Barty Crouch! Good heavens, said Professor McGonagall, stopping dead, staring down at the man on the floor. Filthy, disheveled Winky peered around Snape's legs. Her mouth opened wide as she let out a piercing shriek. Master Barty! Master Barty, what is you doing here? She flung herself forward onto the young man's chest. You has killed him! You has killed him! You has killed Master's son! He is simply stunned, Winky, said Dumbledore. Step aside, please. Severus, you have the potion? Snape handed Dumbledore a small glass of completely clear liquid. 
the veritasierum with which he had threatened Harry in class. Dumbledore got up, bent over the man on the floor, pulled him into a sitting position against the wall, beneath the faux glass in which reflections of Dumbledore, Snape, and McGonagall were still glaring down upon them all, and Winky remained on her knees, trembling, her hand over her face. Dumbledore forced the man's mouth open and poured three drops inside it. Then he pointed his wand at the man's chest and said, Enervate. Crouch's, eyes, so Crouch's son's eyes opened, his face was slack, gaze unfocused, and Dumbledore knelt before him so that their faces were level. Can you hear me? Dumbledore asked quietly. The man's eyelids flickered. Yes, he muttered. I would like you to tell us, said Dumbledore softly, how you came to be here. How did you escape from Azkaban? Crouch took a deep, shuddering breath and then began to speak in a flat, expressionless voice. My mother saved me. She knew I was dying. She persuaded my father to rescue me as a last favor to her. He loved her as he never loved me. And he agreed. They came to me. They gave me a draft of Polyjuice Potion containing one of my mother's hairs. She took a draft of Polyjuice Potion containing one of my hairs. And we took on each other's appearance. Winky was shaking her head, trembling. Say no more, Master Barty. Say no more. You was getting your father into trouble. But Crouch took another deep breath and continued in the same flat voice. The Dementors are blind. They sensed one healthy, one dying person entering Azkaban. And they sensed one healthy, one dying person leaving it. My father smuggled me out disguised as my mother in case any prisoners were watching through the doors. And my mother died a short while afterwards in Azkaban but she was careful to drink Polyjuice Potion until the end. She was buried under my name and bearing my appearance, and everyone believed her to be me. The man's eyes flickered. And what did your father do with you when you had got home? Said Dumbledore. Stage my mother's death. A quiet, private funeral. Thy grave is empty. Then the house elf nursed me back to health. Then I had to be concealed. I had to be controlled. My father had to use a number of spells to subdue me. When I recovered my strength, I thought of only finding my master, of returning to his service. How did your father subdue you? said Dumbledore. The imperious curse. I was under my father's control. I was forced to wear an invisibility cloak day and night. I was always with the house elf. She was my keeper and caretaker. She pitied me, and she persuaded my father to give me occasional treats, rewards for my good behavior. Master Barty, Master Barty, sobbed Winky through her hands. You isn't ought tell them. We is getting in trouble. Did anyone ever discover that you were still alive, said Dumbledore softly. Did anyone except you and your father know, and the house elf? Yes, said Crouch, his eyes flickered again. A witch in my father's office, Bertha Jorkins. She came to the house with papers for my father's signature. He was not at home. Winky showed her inside and returned to the kitchen. To me. But Bertha heard Winky talking to me. She came to investigate. She heard enough to guess who was hiding under the invisibility cloak. My father arrived home. She confronted him, and he put a very powerful memory charm on her to make her forget what she'd found out. Too powerful. He said it damaged her memory permanently. Why is she coming to nose into my master's private business, sobbed Winky. Why isn't she leaving us be? Tell me about the Quidditch World Cup, said Dumbledore. Winky talked my father into it, said Crouch still in the same monotonous voice. She spent months persuading him. I had not left the house for years. I love Quidditch. Let him go, she said. He will be in his invisibility cloak. He can watch. Let him smell fresh air for once. She said my mother would have wanted it, 
She told my father my mother had not died to give me my freedom. She told me that my father. She told my father that my mother had died to give me freedom. That she had not saved me for a life of imprisonment, and he agreed in the end. It was carefully planned. My father led me and Winky up to the top box early in the day. Winky was to say that she was saving a seat for my father. I was to sit there, invisible. When everyone had left the box, we would emerge. Winky would appear to be alone, and no one would ever know. But Winky didn't know I was growing stronger. I was starting to fight my father's imperious curse. There were times when I was almost myself again. There were brief periods when I seemed outside his control. It happened there, in the top box. It was like waking from a deep sleep. I found myself out in public, in the middle of a match. And I saw in front of me, a wand sticking out of a boy's pocket. I had not been allowed a wand since before Azkaban, so I stole it. Winky didn't know. Winky is frightened of heights, so she had her face hidden. Master Barty, you bad boy, whispered Winky, tears drinkling between her fingers. So you took the wand, said Dumbledore. And what did you do with it? We went back to the tent, said Crouch. Then we heard them. We heard the Death Eaters. The ones that had never been to Azkaban. The ones who never suffered from my master. They had turned their backs on him. They were not enslaved as I was. They were free to seek him, but they did not. They were merely making sport of muggles. The sound of their voices awoke me. My mind was clearer than it had been in years. I was angry, and I had the wand. I wanted to attack them for their disloyalty to my master. My father had left the tent, had gone to free the muggles, and Winky was afraid to see me so angry, so she used her own brand of magic to bind me to her. She pulled me from the tent, pulled me into the forest, away from the Death Eaters. I tried to hold her back. I wanted to return to the cab site. I wanted to show those Death Eaters what loyalty to the Dark Lord really meant, and to punish them for their lack of it. And so I used the stolen wand to cast a dark mark into the sky. Ministry wizards arrived. They shot stunning spells everywhere. One of the spells came through the trees where Winky and I stood. The bond connecting us was broken. We were both stunned. When Winky was discovered, my father knew I must be nearby. He searched the bushes and where she had been found and felt me lying there. He waited until the other ministry members had left the forest. He put me back under the Imperious Curse and took me home. He dismissed Winky. She had failed him. She had let me acquire a wand and she had almost let me escape. Winky let out a wail of despair. Now it was just father and I, alone in the house. And then... And then... Crouch's head rolled on his neck and an insane grin spread across his face. My master came for me. He arrived at our house late one night in the arms of his servant in Wormtail. My master had found out that I was still alive. He had captured Bertha Jorkins in Albania. He had tortured her, and she had told him a great deal. She had told him about the Triwizard Tournament. She had told him the old Auror Moody was going to teach at Hogwarts. He tortured her until he broke through the memory charm my father had placed upon her. She told him I had escaped from Azkaban. She told him my father kept me in prison to prevent me from seeking my master, and so my master knew that I was still his faithful servant. Perhaps the most faithful of all. My master conceived a plan based on the information Bertha had given him. He needed me. He arrived at our house near midnight, my father answered the door. The smile spread wider over Crouch's face as though recalling the sweetest memory of his life. Winky petrified brown eyes were visible through her fingers and she seemed too appalled to speak. It was very quick. My father was placed under the imperious curse by my master. And now my father was the one imprisoned. Controlled. My master forced him to go about his business as usual. 
to act as though nothing was wrong. And I was released. I awoke. I was myself again, alive as I hadn't been in years. And what did Lord Voldemort ask you to do? said Dumbledore. He asked me whether I was ready to risk everything for him. I was ready. It was my dream, my greatest ambition to serve him, to prove myself to him. He told me he needed to place a faithful servant at Hogwarts, a servant who would guide Harry Potter through the Triwizard Tournament without appearing to do so, a servant who would watch over Harry Potter, ensure he reached the Triwizard Cup, turn the, port key, turn the cup into a portkey, which would take the first person to touch it to my master. But first, you needed Alistair Moody, said Dumbledore. His blue eyes were blazing, though his voice remained calm. Wormtail and I did it. We, we prepared the Polyjuice Potion beforehand. We journeyed to his house. Moody put up a struggle, and there was a commotion. We managed to subdue him just in time, forced him into a compartment of his own magical trunk, took some of his hair and added it to the potion. I drank it. I became Moody's double. I took his leg and his eye, and I was ready to face Arthur Weasley when he arrived to sort out the muggles who had heard a disturbance. I made the dustbins move around the yard, and I told Arthur Weasley I had heard intruders in my yard who had set off the dustbins. Then I packed up Moody's clothes and dark detectors, put them in the trunk with Moody, and set off for Hogwarts. I kept him alive under the Imperius curse. I wanted to be able to question him to find out about his past, learn his habits so that I could fool even Dumbledore. I also needed his hair to make the Polyjuice Potion. The other ingredients were easy. I stole Boomslang skin from the dungeons when the Potion Master found me in his office. I said I was under orders to search it. And what became of Wormtail after you attacked Moody, said Dumbledore. Wormtail returned to care for my master in my father's house and had to keep watch over my father. But your father escaped, said Dumbledore. Yes. After a while, he began to fight the Imperious Curse just as I had done. There were periods when he knew what was happening. My master decided it was no longer safe for my father to leave the house, so he forced him to send letters to the ministry instead. He made him write and say that he was ill, but Wormtail neglected his duty. He was not watchful enough. My father escaped. My master guessed that he was headed for Hogwarts, and my father was going to tell Dumbledore everything. To confess, he was going to admit that he smuggled me out of Azkaban. My master sent me word of my father's escape. He told me to stop him at all costs, so I waited and watched. I used the map that I had taken from Harry Potter, the map that had almost ruined everything. Map, said Dumbledore quickly. What map is this? Potter's map of Hogwarts. Potter saw me on it. Potter saw me stealing more ingredients for the Polyjuice Potion from Snape's office one night. He thought I was my father. We have the same first name. I took the map from Potter that night. I told him my father hated dark wizards, and Potter believed my father was after Snape. So for a week I waited for my father to arrive at Hogwarts. At last, one evening, the map showed my father entering the grounds. I pulled on my invisibility cloak and went down to meet him. He was walking around the edge of the forest, and then Potter came, and Crumb. I waited. I could not hurt Potter. My master needed him. Potter ran to get Dumbledore. I stunned Crumb. I killed my father. No, wailed Winky. Master Barty, Master Barty, what is you saying? You killed your father, Dumbledore said in the same soft voice. What did you do with the body? I carried it into the forest, covered it with the invisibility cloak. I had the map with me. I watched Potter run into the castle. He met Snape. Dumbledore joined them. I watched Potter bringing Dumbledore out of the castle. I walked back out of the forest, dumbling around behind them, went to meet them. 
I told Dumbledore that Snape had told me where to come. Dumbledore told me to go and look for my father. I went back to my father's body, watched the map. When everyone was gone, I transfigured my father's body. He became a bone. I buried it while wearing the invisibility cloak in the freshly dug earth in front of Hagrid's cabin. There was complete silence now except Winky's continued sobs. Then Dumbledore said, And tonight? I offered to carry the Triwizard Cup into the maze before dinner, whispered Barty Crouch. I turned it into a port key. My master's plan worked. He has returned to power, and I will be honored by him beyond the wildest dreams of wizards. The insane smile lit his features once more, and his head drooped on his shoulder as Winky wailed and sobbed at his side. So that takes us through the that chapter 35 of Veritas Sierra. So now we get to we get to see everything that happened in its entirety, right? We know now we talked about this kind of uh, where these other wizards were fighting the Imperius curse, but it took him a while. So Barty Crouch, a Death Eater who has to be some form of a powerful wizard himself, took a while to fight the Imperius curse by his father Barty Crouch. Then they put Alistair Moody under the Imperius Curse so he could get to know about Moody. And remember, Moody is one of the greatest horrors of his generation. Put a bunch of Dark Wizards in Azkaban. And he's, he, you know, Moody wasn't even fighting the Imperius Curse that well. Then Voldemort put the, the, obviously it was like baby, feeble, like skeletal Voldemort, put the Imperius Curse on Barty Crouch. And Barty Crouch started to fight it too. But again, after a period of time. Which makes it more impressive that 14-year-old Harry Potter fought it off the very first time that it was attempted on him by a fully grown, powerful, return-to-power Voldemort. So that goes to show the the level of, uh, of, I would say, courage that Harry's shown and his ability to always figure out a way to get out of sticky situations, man. He's the, the luckiest boy of all time, I'll say. But isn't it interesting, dude? When we think about all the events that transpired up to that, like it just—it was a perfect flip for J.K. Rowling. Because when you're first reading this, before they they come out and say it's it's Barty Crouch, and we see that, like you still think it could be Mad Eye Moody, and that would have been a wild way to go with it too. Imagine if the real Mad Eye Moody was a dark wizard actually the whole time, and he was like putting wizards in Azkaban, but so he can he knew where they were to release them at the time when Voldemort returned to power. Like that would have been cool too. She. She's done a couple things between the last book and this book to where no matter which way she took it, it would have been a cool story. What are your thoughts on that? My only issue with that is then if that would been had been the case, then that would have really, um, really, really had said that Dumbledore is overrated is what that would mean. Because that would mean that the whole big thing here is like how Dumbledore said, you know, <clears throat> I knew that Alistair Moody wasn't Alistair Moody uh, when he, you know, asked you to come with him. Like, he would have never taken you out of my sight if this was the real Alistair Moody. So it would have really, like, misjudged Dumbledore's character if that were the case. So I think she did it the right way. Um, I mean, but, yeah, that definitely would have... I don't know. It seems almost too predictable for me if that were the case. Because then it's just the typical of like, oh, this guy was a double agent the whole time. It's someone you don't expect. Well, no, she took it with the flip of 
yeah, it's someone you don't expect, but it's definitely someone you don't expect because it's not even that the person you think he actually is. So I, in my opinion, I think she definitely took it the right way. Um, but because that's my problem is that would have really, um, really misjudged Dumbledore's ability uh, to judge his successors or to judge uh, the people that he hires to even work in inside Hogwarts. Uh, that would mean that you never know with Lupin. Like, maybe we never found out really about Lupin at that point. So that's kind of my only issue with that. Uh, well, but it's... I think, I mean, it's that's like the big, uh, kind of the, really like one of the big highlights of this book is there's really no major plot holes because everything that you're thinking could wind up being a plot hole that they would just leave out, she fills in with everything is explained here in this chapter pretty much so that's my thoughts on that so yeah i agree that she did the right way i'm saying it still would have been a good story regardless if she went the other way with it and mm -hmm. as far as your your points about dumbledore well like he hired professor quirrell who had voldemort on the back of his head like he's been he's been fooled many times remember like he the by in the chamber of or, like, at the sorcerer's stone like he got a letter to the ministry and he left like oh he got fooled okay. by a he got fooled by a letter and then like like, like, this is one of the things when we do our top-ranking, like, wizards, like, at the very end of the Harry Potter series, when we do our top five, like, our top five most powerful wizards, these are some things that kind of work against Dumbledore in a way, because, like, he's constantly being, like, outmaneuvered consistently throughout the series. Remember in the Chamber of Secrets, like, they had the diary right under his nose, like, like this chamber was open. They had, like, he got removed from the Hogwarts. They, they expelled him as headmaster for, like, the majority of the thing, like... Lucius Malfoy outsmarted him. You know what I mean? Like this is this is silly stuff. Like Dumbledore is as brilliant as he is. It's like he thinks too far ahead and not really knowing what's going on in the present moment and so he's able to be outmaneuvered in the in the present time. You know, he has I, the he has the better overall picture and eventually gets, you know, those things accomplished, but like he's constantly being fooled all the time. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you there. I I definitely do, but at the same time backing my point here is this happened like right in front of his face so if Alistair the only way you could really play it off if Alistair Moody was a double agent and it wouldn't um, downgrade Dumbledore's judgmental ability uh, as that would almost like say like almost incompetence is like Alistair Moody would have to in front of everybody really just like attack Harry right there like he couldn't have like pulled him off into the corner because I mean that would really misjudge if he's known Moody this entire time just like we saw with the Pensieve on how far their history goes back like there's no way he would not be able to judge that like this isn't some guy that just like walked in and got hired like he, he's known him for literally years like decades like they're like they're both in the order of the phoenix and that would have been kind of cool to see like hey this guy was like we all thought wormtail was the only one that was like, crap like i'm saying like i'm not saying he, she did it wrong i'm saying it would have worked either way because what's one of dumbledore's biggest not character flaws but a knock against him is that he trusts too easily like he's too easily like he trusting of of individuals and it it just would have gone to like prove that point more, and then it would make what happens with Snape even more impressive when we get to that way later on. 
I like, could I could see that part. I think it's a little bit of a stretch because it's really knocking Dumbledore. But like, I I could see it. My problem though is like, say if he was like gonna attack Harry, being like the actual Alistair Moody, right? Then. I feel like she would have had to drag that part on into the next book. Like, it would have almost been, like, too declimactic. Like, for Moody that's been in Aurora all these years, taking down, like, some of the greatest Death Eaters of all time, and then, you know, just goes in and, like, exposes himself. Like, I feel like she would have had to, like, have done it a different way if that was the exact Alistair Moody. Because I feel like Alistair Moody is... I mean, keep in mind, this is a dude that, like, literally worked for the ministry, like, as a hitman, basically tracking people down for years. Like, I don't feel like he would have just, like, locked Harry in a closet thinking no one thought that would have been weird. And be like, this is what I did, and here's all my secrets. Like, I feel like the actual Alistair Moody would have, like, if it was actually Alistair, like, he would have found another way to corner Harry like it probably would have had to drag into the next book like where you're going into like Dumbledore's army and stuff because otherwise like you know everything he worked towards would have been shut down in like minutes that's my only like argument with that but I, I could very he, well see how that would turn out to be a good thing too I just feel like you couldn't just like I don't think the real Alistair Moody would have just locked a 14 year old a 16 year old boy in an office expecting no one would have thought that was weird I, just, I the way I would say like they they could make it work, and this is just kind of going off on a wild tangent here. But like, if, it, if they could make it with very small adjustments, just with this one move, instead of what happens, what Fudge has happened to Barty Crouch here in a second, instead of that happen, Moody gets sent to Azkaban, and then when what happens like in the next book when the death, I don't right. want to get you know what I mean, but like then all of a sudden he's out he's out free. And now he's he now he's a big problem for the order, like you yeah, know what I mean. See, that's like, how I. But would, that's not that's, that's not a big change. Like he can still that. do all yeah. that. Yeah, it's just a quick change. Like instead of what happens to Barty and at this book, make him go to Azkaban. That's literally the only change you have mm-hmm. to make happen. Like that's yeah. it. But yeah, either no, way, no, like no, they, yeah. she did it right. Like it's an amazing book, regardless. I'm just saying, like how awesome is it for her as a writer to set it up where it could have gone in a couple different ways and still been an amazing story, right? Like, yeah, pretty pretty amazing. No, but I agree with you 100% on that, but that's kind of exactly what I was saying. Like, that's really what would have had to happen. Like, I don't think he would have just exposed everything in this book. Like, it probably would have dragged on. Like, the, the butterfly effect, you know, the ripple effect of the consequences would have dragged so far through the order if Alistair was actually the antagonist in this situation is, is what I think would have happened. So, but I think I, I do agree with you on that though. It could have been really cool either way, man, either way. But now we know instead of a, (laughs) what an 800 page book next novel, it would have turned into a thousand. (laughs) That's what would have happened. It was close. That was 870. So it was close enough to a thousand as it was, man. The (laughs) order of the Phoenix we're talking about guys. We didn't. Yeah. But, um, yeah, let's, let's jump back into it. You only got two chapters left, which is great. We're, uh, we're almost through it, and then we'll discuss kind of everything else that we had, you know, the, the bit of foreshadowed moments, because we're reading it all through, so, like, we don't have to touch on them, just to make, make you aware that they're there. Then I do have a couple plot holes. You'll give your interesting facts, 
I'll tell you, I'll tell everyone the exact bulleted reasons why Goblet to me stands out above the rest. And then, then we'll close out uh, Goblet of Fire today and then uh, entirely next week when we tackle the differences episode. So let's get rocking with chapter 36, The Parting of the Ways. Dumbledore stood up, stared down at Barty Crouch for a moment with disgust on his face. He then raised his wand once more. Ropes flew out of it, ropes that twisted themselves around Barty Crouch, binding him tightly. He turned to Professor McGonagall. Minerva, could I ask you to stand guard here while I take Harry upstairs? Of course, said Professor McGonagall. She looked slightly nauseous, as though she had just watched someone being sick. However, when she drew out her wand and pointed at Barty Crouch, her hand was quite steady. Severus, Dumbledore turned to Snape, please tell Madame Pomfrey to come down here. We need to get Alistair Moody to the hospital wing. Then go down into the grounds, find Cornelius Fudge, and bring him to this office. He will undoubtedly want to question Crouch himself. Tell him I will be in the hospital wing in a half hour's time if he needs me. Snape nodded silently and swept out of the room. Harry, Dumbledore said gently. Harry got up and swayed again. The pain in his leg, which he had not noticed all the time, had been listening to Crouch, now returned in full measure. He also realized he was shaking. Dumbledore gripped his arm and helped him out into the dark corridor. I want you to come up to my office first, Harry, he said quietly as they headed up the passageway. Sirius is waiting for us there. Harry nodded. A kind of numbness and a sense of complete unreality were upon him, but he did not care. He was even glad of it. He didn't want to even have to think about anything that happened since he had first touched the Triwizard Cup. He didn't want to have to examine the memories, fresh and sharp as photographs, which kept flashing across his mind. Mad-Eye Moody, inside the trunk, Wormtail, slumped on the ground, cradling the stump of his arm. Voldemort, rising from the steaming cauldron. Cedric, dead. Cedric asking to be returned to his parents. Professor, Harry mumbled, where are Mr. and Mrs. Diggory? There with Professor Sprout, said Dumbledore. His voice which had been so calm throughout the interrogation of Barty Crouch, shook very slightly for the first time. She was the head of Cedric's house, and she knew him best. They had reached the stone gargoyle. Dumbledore gave the password, it sprang aside, and he and Harry went up the moving spiral staircase to the oak door. Dumbledore pushed it open, and Sirius was standing there, his face white and gaunt, as it had been when he escaped Azkaban. In one swift moment, he had crossed the room. Harry, are you all right? I knew it. I knew something like this. What happened? His hands shook as he helped Harry into a chair in front of the desk. What happened? He asked more urgently. Dumbledore began to tell Sirius everything Barty Crouch had said. Harry was only half listening. So tired. Every bone in his body was aching. He wanted nothing more than to sit there undisturbed for hours and hours until he fell asleep and he didn't have to think or feel anymore. And there was a soft rush of wings, and Fox the Phoenix had left to perch, flown across the office, and landed on Harry's knee. Hello, Fox, said Harry quietly. He stroked the Phoenix's beautiful scarlet and gold plumage. Fox blinked peacefully up at him. There was something comforting about his warm weight. Dumbledore stopped talking. He sat down opposite Harry from behind his desk. He was looking at Harry, who avoided his eyes. Dumbledore was going to question him. He was going to make Harry relive everything. I need to know what happened after you touched the port key in the maze, Harry, said Dumbledore. We can leave that till the morning, can't we, Dumbledore, said Sirius harshly. He put a hand on Harry's shoulder. 
Let him have sleep. Let him rest. Harry felt a rush of gratitude towards Sirius, but Dumbledore took no notice of Sirius's words. He leaned forward towards Harry. Very unwillingly, Harry raised his head and looked into those blue eyes. If I thought I could help you, Dumbledore said gently, by putting you into enchanted sleep and allowing you to postpone the moment when you would have to think about what has happened tonight, I would do it. But I know better. Numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. You have shown bravery behind, beyond anything I could have expected of you. I ask you to demonstrate your courage one more time. I ask you to tell us what happened. The phoenix let out one soft quavering note, and it shivered in the air, and Harry felt as though a drop of hot liquid had slipped down his throat into his stomach, warming him and strengthening him. He took a deep breath and began to tell them. As he spoke, visions of everything that had passed that night seemed to rise before his eyes. He saw the sparkling surface of the potion that had revived Voldemort. He saw the Death Eaters apparating between the graves around them. He saw Cedric's body lying on the ground beside the cup. Once or twice, Sirius made a noise as though he was about to say something, his hand still tight on Harry's shoulder, but Dumbledore raised his hand to stop him. And Harry was glad of this because it was easier to keep going now that he had started. It was even relief, he felt, as almost as though something poisonous were being extracted from him. It was costing him every bit of determination he had to keep talking, yet he sensed that once he had finished, he would feel better. When Harry told of Wormtail piercing his arm with the dagger, however, Sirius let out a vehement exclamation, and Dumbledore stood up so quickly that Harry started. Dumbledore walked around the desk and told Harry to stretch out his arm. Harry showed them both the place where his robes were torn and the cup beneath them. He said my blood would make him stronger than if he used somebody else's. Harry told Dumbledore. He said the protection my mother had left in me, he'd have it too. And he was right. He could touch me without hurting himself. He touched my face. For a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. But next second, Harry was sure he had imagined it. For when Dumbledore had returned to his seat behind the desk, he looked as old and as weary as Harry had ever seen him. Very well, he said, sitting down again. Voldemort has overcome that particular barrier. Harry, continue, please. Harry went on. He explained how Voldemort had emerged from the cauldron and told them all he could remember of Voldemort's speech to the Death Eaters. Then he told how Voldemort had untied him, returned his wand, and prepared to duel. But when he reached the part where the golden beams of light had connected in his, his and Voldemort's wand, he found his throat obstructed. He tried to keep talking, but memories of what had happened and what had come out of Voldemort's wand were flooding into his mind. He could see Cedric emerging, see the old man, Bertha Jorkins, his father, his mother. He was glad when Sirius broke the silence. The wand's connected, he said, looking from Harry to Dumbledore. Why? Harry looked up at Dumbledore again, on whose face there was an arrested look. Priorian Cantatum, he muttered. His eyes gazed into Harry's, and it was almost as though an invisible beam of understanding shot between them. The reverse spell effect? said Sirius sharply. Exactly. Harry's wand and Voldemort's wand share cores. Each of them contains a feather from the tail of the same phoenix. This phoenix, in fact, he added as he pointed at the scarlet and gold bird perching peacefully on Harry's knee. My wand's feather came from Fox, said Harry amazed. Yes, said Dumbledore. Mr. Ollivander wrote me to tell you, wrote to tell me you had bought the second wand the moment you had left the shop four years ago. 
So what happens when a wand meets its brother, said Sirius. They will not work properly against each other, said Dumbledore. If, however, the owners of the wands force the wands to do battle, a very rare effect will take place. One of the wands will force the other to regurgitate spells it has performed in reverse. The most recent first, and then those which preceded it. He looked interrogatively at Harry, and Harry nodded. Which means, said Dumbledore slowly, his eyes upon Harry's face, that some form of Cedric must have reappeared. Harry nodded again. Diggory came back to life, said Sirius sharply. No spell can reawaken the dead, said Dumbledore heavily. All that would have happened is a kind of reverse echo. A shadow of the living Cedric would have emerged from the wand. Am I correct, Harry? He spoke to me, Harry said, and he was suddenly shaking again. That the ghost, Cedric, or whatever he was, spoke. An echo, said Dumbledore, which retained Cedric's appearance and character. I am guessing other forms appeared, less recent victims of Voldemort's wand. An old man, Harry said, his throat still constricted. Bertha Jorkins and... Your parents, said Dumbledore quietly. Yes, said Harry. Sirius's grip on, sh on Harry's shoulder was now so tight it was painful. The last murders the wand performed, said Dumbledore, in reverse order. More would have appeared, of course, had you maintained the connection. Very well, Harry. These echoes, these shadows, what did they do? Harry described how the figures that had emerged from the wand had prowled the edges of the golden globe, of the golden web. How Voldemort had seemed to fear them, how the shadow of Harry's father had told him what to do, and how Cedric had made his final request. At this point, Harry could not continue, and he looked around at Sirius and saw that he had his face in his hands. Harry suddenly became aware that Fox had left his knee. The phoenix had fluttered to the floor, and it was resting its beautiful head against Harry's injured leg and thick, Pearly tears were falling into it from its eyes onto the wound left by the spider. The pain vanished, the skin mended, his leg was repaired. I will say it again, said Dumbledore, as the phoenix rose into the air and resettled itself upon the perch beside the door. You have shown bravery beyond anything I could have expected from you tonight, Harry. You have shown bravery equal to those who died fighting Voldemort at the height of his powers. You have shouldered a grown wizard's burden and find yourself equal to it. You have now given us all we have a right to expect. You will come with me to the hospital wing. I do not want you returning to your dormitory tonight. A sleeping potion and some peace. Sirius, would you like to stay with him? Sirius nodded and stood up. He transformed back into the great black dog and walked with Harry and Dumbledore out of the office, accompanying them down a flight of stairs to the hospital wing. When Dumbledore pushed the door open, Harry saw Mrs. Weasley, Bill, Ron, and Hermione grouped around a harassed-looking Madame Pomfrey. They appeared to be demanding to know where Harry was and what had happened to them. All of them whipped around as Harry, Dumbledore, and the black dog entered, and Mrs. Weasley let out a muffled scream. Harry! Oh, Harry! She started to hurry towards him, but Dumbledore moved between them. Molly, he said, holding up a hand, please listen to me for a moment. Harry has been through a terrible ordeal tonight. He has just had to relive it for me. What he needs now is sleep and peace and quiet. If he would like you to all stay with him, he added, looking at Ron and Hermione and Bill too, you may do so. But I do not want you questioning him until he is ready to answer, and certainly not this evening. 
Mrs. Weasley nodded. She was very white. She rounded on Ron, Hermione, and Bill as though they were being noisy and hissed, Did you hear? He needs quiet. Headmaster, Madame Pomfrey said, staring back at the great black dog that was serious. May I ask what? This dog will be remaining with Harry for a while, said Dumbledore simply. I assure you he is extremely well trained. Harry, I will wait while you get into bed. Harry felt an inexpressible sense of gratitude to Dumbledore for asking the others not to question him. It wasn't as though he didn't want them there, but the thought of explaining it all over again, the idea of reliving it one more time, was more than he could stand. "'I will be back to see you as soon as I have met with Fudge, Harry,' said Dumbledore. "'I would like you to remain here tomorrow until I have spoken to the school.' And he left. As Madame Pomfrey led Harry to a nearby bed, he caught sight of the real Moody lying motionless on a bed at the far end of the room. His wooden leg and magical eye were lying on the bedside table. "'Is he okay?' Harry asked. "'He'll be fine,' said Madame Pomfrey, giving Harry some pajamas and pulling the screens around him. He took off his robes, pulled on the pajamas, and got into bed. Ron, Hermione, Bill, Mrs. Weasley, and the black dog came around the screen and settled themselves in chairs on either side of him. Ron and Hermione were looking at him, almost cautiously, as though scared of him. I'm alright, he told them. Just tired. Mrs. Weasley's eyes filled with tears as she smoothed the bed covers unnecessarily. Madame Pomfrey, who had bustled off to her office, returned holding a small bottle of some purple potion and a goblet. You need to drink all of this, Harry. It is a potion for dreamless sleep. Harry took the goblet and drank a few mouthfuls. He felt himself becoming drowsy at once. Everything around him became hazy. The lamps around the hospital wing seemed to be winking at him in a friendly way through the screen around his bed. His body felt as though it was sinking deeper into the warmth of the feather mattress. Before he could finish the potion, before he could say another word, his exhaustion had carried him off to sleep. Harry woke up so warm, so very sleepy that he didn't open his eyes, wanting to drop off again. The room was still dimly lit. He was sure it was still a night it was still nighttime, and he had a feeling he couldn't have been asleep very long. Then he heard the whispering around him. They'll wake him if they don't shut up. What are they shouting about? Nothing else could have happened, can it? Harry opened his eyes blearily. Someone had removed his glasses. He could see the fuzzy outline of Mrs. Weasley and Bill close by. Mrs. Weasley was on her feet. That's Fudge's voice, she whispered. And that's Minerva McGonagall's, isn't it? But what are they arguing about? Now Harry could hear them too, people shouting and running towards the hospital wing. Regettable, but all the same, Minerva, Cornelius Fudge was saying loudly. You should have never brought it inside the castle, yelled Professor McGonagall. When Dumbledore finds out, Harry heard the hospital doors burst open, unnoticed by any of the people around his bed, all of whom were staring at the door as Bill pulled back the screens. Harry sat up, put his glasses back on, and Fudge came striding up the ward. Professors McGonagall and Snape were at his heels. Where's Dumbledore? Fudge demanded of Mrs. Weasley. He's not here, said Mrs. Weasley angrily, and this is a hospital wing, Minister. Don't you think you'd do better too? But the door opened, and Dumbledore came sweeping up the ward. What has happened? said Dumbledore sharply, looking from Fudge to Professor McGonagall. Why are you disturbing these people? Minerva, I'm surprised at you. I asked you to stand guard over Barty Crouch. There is no need to stand guard over him anymore, Dumbledore, she shrieked. The minister has seen to that. Harry had never seen Professor McGonagall lose control like this. There were angry blotches of color in her cheeks, and her hands were balled into fists while she was trembling with fury. When we told Mr. Fudge, 
that we had caught the Death Eater responsible for tonight's events, said Snape in a low voice. He seemed to feel his personal safety was in question. He insisted on summoning a Dementor to accompany him into the castle. He brought it up to the office where Barty crouched. I told him you would not agree, Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall fumed. I told him he would never allow Dementors to set foot in the castle, but... My dear woman, roared Fudge, who likewise looked angrier than Harry had ever seen him. As Minister of Magic, it is my decision whether I wish to bring protection with me when I interview a possibly dangerous... But Professor McGonagall's voice drowned out Fudge's. The moment that thing entered the room, she screamed, pointing at Fudge, trembling all over. It swooped down on Crouch, and... and... Harry felt a chill in his stomach. As Professor McGonagall struggled to find the words to describe what had happened, he did not need her to finish the sentence. He knew what the Dementor must have done. It had administered its fatal kiss to Barty Crouch. It sucked its soul right through its, his soul right through its mouth, and he was worse than dead. By all accounts, he is no loss, blustered Fudge. It seems he has been responsible for several deaths. But he cannot now give testimony, Cornelius, said Dumbledore. He was staring hard at Fudge, as though seeing him plainly for the first time. He cannot give evidence about why he killed those people. Why he killed them? Well, that's no mystery, is it? Blustered Fudge. He was a raving lunatic. From what Minerva and Severus have told me, he seems to have thought he was doing it all on you-know-whose instructions. Lord Voldemort was giving him instructions, Cornelius. Those people's deaths were mere byproducts of a plan to restore Voldemort to full strength again. The plan succeeded. Voldemort has been restored to his body. Fudge looked as though someone had just swung a heavy weight into his face. Dazed and blinking, he stared back at Dumbledore as if he couldn't quite believe what he had just heard. He began to sputter, still goggling at Dumbledore. You know who returned? Preposterous, come now, Dumbledore. As Minerva and Severus have doubtless told you, said Dumbledore, we heard Barty Crouch confess. Under the influence of Veritas Sierra, he told us how he was smuggled out of Azkaban and how Voldemort, learning of his continued existence from Bertha Jorkins, went to free him from his father and used him to capture Harry. The plan worked, I tell you. Crouch has held Voldemort return. See here, Dumbledore, said Fudge, and Harry was astonished to see a slight smile dawning on his face. You can't seriously believe that. You know who? Back? Come now, come now. Certainly, Crouch may have believed himself to be acting upon you-know-who's orders, but to take the word of a lunatic like that, Dumbledore. When Harry touched the Triwizard Cup tonight, he was transported straight to Lord Voldemort, said Dumbledore steadily. He witnessed Lord Voldemort's rebirth. I'll explain it all to you if you will step to my office. Dumbledore glanced around at Harry and saw that he was awake, but shook his head and said, I am afraid I cannot permit you to question Harry tonight. Fudge's curious smile lingered. He glanced at Harry and looked back at Dumbledore and said, You are uh, prepared to take Harry's word on this, are you, Dumbledore? And there was a moment's silence, which was broken by Sirius's growling. His hackles were raised and his teeth were baring at Fudge. Certainly, I believe, Harry, said Dumbledore, his eyes blazing now. I heard Crouch's confession, and I heard Harry's account of what happened after he touched, touched the Triwizard Cup. The two stories make sense. They explained everything that has happened since Bertha Jorkins disappeared last summer. Fudge still had that strange smile on his face. Once again, he glanced at Harry before answering. You are prepared to believe that Lord Voldemort has returned on the word of a lunatic murderer and a boy 
who, well, Fudge shot Harry another look, and Harry suddenly understood. You've been reading Rita Skeeter, Mr. Fudge, he said quietly. Ron, Hermione, Mrs. Weasley, and Bill all jumped. None of them had realized that Harry was awake. Fudge reddened slightly, but a defiant and obstinate look came over his face. And if I have, he said, looking at Dumbledore, if I have discovered that you've been keeping certain facts about the boy very quiet, a parcel mouth, eh? And having funny turns all over the place? I assume that you're referring to the pains Harry has experienced in his scar, said Dumbledore coolly. You admit that he has been having these pains then, said Fudge quickly. Headaches? Nightmares? Possibly hallucinations? Listen to me, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, taking a step towards Fudge, and once again, he seemed to radiate that indefinable sense of power that he, Harry had felt Dumbledore had after he had stunned young Crouch. Harry is as sane as you or I. That scar upon his forehead has not addled his brains. I believe it hurts him when Lord Voldemort is close by or feeling particularly murderous. Fudge had taken a half step back from Dumbledore, but he looked no less stubborn. You'll forgive me, Dumbledore, but I've never heard of a cursed scar acting as an alarm bell before. Look, I saw Voldemort come back, Harry shouted. He tried to get out of bed again, but Mrs. Weasley forced him back. I saw the Death Eaters. I can give you their names. Lucius Malfoy. Snape made a sudden movement, but as Harry looked at him, Snape's eyes flew back to Fudge. Malfoy was cleared, said Fudge, visibly affronted. A very old family. Donations to excellent causes. MacNair, Harry continued, also cleared, now working for the Ministry. Avery, Knott, Crab, Goyle. You are merely repeating the names of those who were acquitted of being Death Eaters 13 years ago, said Fudge angrily. You could have found those names in old reports of the trials. For heaven's sake, Dumbledore. The boy was full of some crackpot story at the end of last year, too. His tails are getting taller and you're still swallowing them. The boy who can talk to snakes? Dumbledore, and you still think he's trustworthy? You fool, said Professor McGonagall as she cried. Cedric Diggory, Mr. Crouch, these deaths were not the random acts of a lunatic. I see no evidence to the contrary, stuttered Fudge, now matching her anger, his face purpling. It seems to me that you are all determined to start a panic that will destabilize everything we have worked for these last 13 years. Harry could not believe what he was hearing. He had always thought of Fudge as a kindly figure. A little blustering, a little pompous, but essentially good-natured. But now a short, angry wizard stood before him, refusing point-blank to accept the prospect of disruption in his comfortable and ordered world, to believe that Voldemort could have risen. Voldemort has returned, Dumbledore repeated. If you accept these facts straight away, Fudge, and take the necessary measures, we still may be able to save the situation. The first and most essential step is to remove Azkaban from the control of the Dementors. Preposterous, shouted Fudge again. Remove the Dementors? I'd be kicked out of office for suggesting it. Half of us only feel safe in our beds at night because we know the Dementors are standing guard at Azkaban. The rest of us sleep less soundly in our beds, Cornelius, knowing that you have put Lord Voldemort's most dangerous supporters in the care of creatures who will join him the instant he asks them, said Dumbledore. They will not remain loyal to you, Fudge. Voldemort can offer them much more scope for their powers and their pleasures than you can. With the Dementors behind him and his old supporters returned to form, you will be hard-pressed to stop him regaining the sort of power he had 13 years ago. Fudge was opening and closing his mouth as though no words could express his outrage. The second step you must take, and at once, 
Dumbledore pressed on, is to send envoys to the Giants. Envoys to the Giants? Fudge shrieked, finding his tongue again. What madness is this? Extend them the hand of friendship now, before it is too late, said Dumbledore, or Voldemort will persuade them, as he did before, that he alone among wizards will give them their rights and their freedom. You can't be serious, Fudge gasped, shaking his head and retreating further from Dumbledore. If the magical community got wind that I had approached the Giants, people hate them, Dumbledore. End of my career. You are blinded, said Dumbledore, his voice rising now, the aura of power around him palpable, his eyes blazing once more. By the love of the office you hold, Cornelius, you place too much importance, and you always have done, on the so-called purity of blood. You fail to recognize that it matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. Your Dementor has just destroyed the last remaining member of a pure-blood family as old as any. And see what that man chose to make of his life. I tell you now, take the steps I have suggested and you will be remembered in office or out as one of the bravest and greatest ministers of magic we have ever known. Fail to act, and history will remember you as the man who stepped aside and allowed Voldemort a second chance to destroy the world we have tried to rebuild. Insane, said Fudge, still backing away. Mad. Then there was a silence. Madame Pomfrey was stood at the frozen, frozen at the foot of Harry's bed, her hand over her mouth. Mrs. Weasley was still standing over Harry, her hand on his shoulder to prevent him from rising. Bill and Hermione were staring at Fudge. If your determination to shut your eyes will carry you as far as this, Cornelius, we have reached a parting of the ways. You must act as you see fit, and I, I shall act as I see fit. Dumbledore's voice carried no hint of a threat. It sounded like a mere statement, but Fudge bristled as though Dumbledore were advancing upon him with a wand. Now see here, Dumbledore, he waved, threatening a finger. I've given you free reign, always. I have a lot of respect for you, and might not have agreed with some of your decisions, but I've kept quiet. There aren't many who would have let you hire werewolves, or keep Hagrid, or decide what to teach your students without reference to the ministry. But if you're going to work against me, the only one I intend to work against, said Dumbledore, is Lord Voldemort. If you are against him, then we remain, Cornelius, on the same side. It seemed Fudge could think of no answer to this. He rocked backwards and forwards on his small feet for a moment, then spun the bowler hat in his hands. Finally, he said with a hint of plea in his voice, he, he can't be back, Dumbledore. He, ju he just can't be. Snape strode forward, past Dumbledore, pulling up the left sleeve of his robe as he went, stuck out his forearm and showed it to Fudge, who recoiled. There, said Snape harshly. There, the dark mark. It is not as clear as it was an hour or so ago when it burned black, but you can still see it. Every Death Eater has the sign burned into him by the Dark Lord. It was a means of distinguishing one another and means of summoning us to him. When he touched the mark of any Death Eater, we were to disapparate and apparate instantly at his side. The mark has been growing clearer all year. Kakaroff's too. Why do you think he fled tonight? We both felt the mark burn. We both knew he had returned. Kakaroff fears the Dark Lord's vengeance. He betrayed too many of his fellow Death Eaters to be sure of a welcome back into the fold. Fudge stepped back from Snape too. He was shaking his head. He did not seem to have taken in a single word Snape had said. He stared apparently repelled by the ugly mark on Snape's arm, then looked up at Dumbledore and whispered, I don't know what you and your staff are playing at, Dumbledore but I have heard enough. I have no more to add. I'll be in touch with you tomorrow. To discuss the running of the school, I now must now return to the ministry. He had almost reached the door and he paused. He turned around, strode back to the dormitory, and stopped at Harry's bed. 
You're winnings, he said shortly, taking a large bag of gold out of his pockets and dropping it on Harry's bedside table. One thousand galleons. There should have been a presentation ceremony, but under the circumstances. He crammed his bowler hat onto his head and walked out of the room, slamming the door behind him. The moment he had disappeared, Dumbledore turned to look at the group around Harry's bed. There is work to be done, he said. Molly, am I right in thinking that I can count on you and Arthur? Of course you can, said Mrs. Weasley. She was white to the lips but looked resolute. We know what Fudge is. It's Arthur's fondness for muggles that has held him back at the ministry all these years. Fudge thinks he acts proper wizarding pride. Then I need to send a message to Arthur, said Dumbledore. All those that we can persuade of the truth must be notified immediately, and he is well placed to contact those at the ministry who are not as short-sighted as Cornelius. I'll go to Dad, said Bill, standing up. I'll go now. Excellent, said Dumbledore. Tell him what has happened. Tell him I will be in direct contact with him shortly, and he will need to be discreet, though. If Fudge thinks I am interfering at the ministry, leave it to me, said Bill. He clapped a hand on Harry's shoulder, kissed his mother on the cheek, pulled his cloak, and strode quickly from the room. Minerva, he said, turning to Professor McGonagall, I want to see Hagrid in my office as soon as possible. Also, if she will consent to come, Madame Maxime. Professor McGonagall looked and, and left without a word. Poppy, Dumbledore said to Madame Pomfrey, would you be very kind to go down to Professor Moody's office where I think you will find a house elf called Winky in considerable distress? Do what you can for her and take her back to the kitchens. I think Dobby will look after her for us. Very, very well, said Madame Pomfrey, looking startled, and she too left. Dumbledore made sure the door was closed and that Madame Pomfrey's footsteps died away before he spoke again. And now it is time for two of our number to recognize each other for what they are. Sirius, if you could resume your usual form. The great black dog looked up at Dumbledore and then an instant turned back into a man. Mrs. Weasley screamed as she left from the bed. Sirius Black, she screamed, pointing at him. Mom, shut up, Ron yelled. It's okay. Snape had not yelled or jumped backward, but the look on his face was one mingled with fury and horror. Him, he snarled at Sirius, whose face showed equal to his, his in dislike. What is he doing here? He is here at my invitation, said Dumbledore, looking between them. As are you, Severus. I trust you both, and it is time for you to lay aside your old differences and trust each other. Harry thought Dumbledore was asking for a near miracle, and Sirius and Snape were eyeing each other with the utmost loathing. I will settle in the short term, said Dumbledore with a bite of impatience in his voice, for a lack of hope and hostility. You will shake hands, you are on the same side now. Time is short, and unless the few of us who know the truth stand united, there is no hope for any of us. Very slowly, still glaring at each other, and as though each wished the other nothing but ill, Sirius and Snape moved toward each other and shook hands. They let go extremely quickly. That will do to be going on with, said Dumbledore, stepping between them once more. Now I have work with each of you. Fudge's attitude, though not unexpected, changes everything. Sirius, I need you to set off at once. You are to alert Remus Lupin, Arabella Fig, Mundungus Fletcher, the old crowd. Lilo at Lupin's for a while, and I will contact you there. But, Harry said, he wanted Sirius to say. He didn't want to have to say goodbye so quickly again. You'll see me very soon, Harry, said Sirius, turning to him. I promise you. But I must do what I can. You understand, don't you? Yeah, said Harry. Yeah, of course I do. Sirius grasped his hand briefly, nodded to Dumbledore, transformed into the black dog, and ran the length of the room to the door, whose handle he turned with a paw, and then he was gone. Severus, said Dumbledore, turning to Snape, you know what I must ask you to do, if you are ready. 
if you are prepared. I am, said Snape. He looked slightly paler than usual, and his cold black eyes glittered strangely. Then good luck, said Dumbledore as he watched the trace of apprehension on his face as Snape swept wordlessly after Sirius. It was several minutes before Dumbledore spoke again. I must go downstairs, he said finally. I must see the diggeries. And Harry, take the rest of your potion. I will see all of you later. Harry slumped back against his pillows as Dumbledore disappeared. Harry, Ron, and Mrs. Weasley were all looking at him. None of them spoke for a very long time. You've got to take the rest of your potion, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley, said at last. Her hand nudged the sack of gold on the bedside cabinet as she reached for the bottle and the goblet. Have a good long sleep. Try and think about something else for a while. Think about what you're going to buy with your winnings. I don't want that gold, said Harry in, expre in an expressionless voice. You have it. Anyone can have it. I shouldn't have won it. It should have been Cedric's. The thing against which he had been fighting on and off ever since he had come out of the maze was threatening to overpower him. He could feel a burning, prickling feeling in the inner corners of his eyes. He blinked, stared up at the ceiling. It wasn't your fault, Harry, Mrs. Weasley whispered. I told him to take the cup with me, said Harry. Now the burning feeling was in his throat too, and he wished Ron would look away. Mrs. Weasley set the <clears throat> potion on the bedside table, bent down, put her arms around Harry. He had no memory of ever being hugged like this, as though by a mother. The full weight of everything that he had seen that night seemed to fall upon him as Mrs. Weasley held him to her. His mother's face, his father's voice, the sight of Cedric, dead on the ground, all started spinning in his head until he could hardly bear it, until he was screwing up his face against the howl of misery that was fighting to get out of him. Then there was a loud slamming noise, and Mrs. Weasley and Harry broke apart. Hermione was standing by the window, and she was holding something tight in her hand. Sorry, she whispered. Your potion, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley quickly, wiping her eyes on the back of her hand. Harry drank it in one gulp, and the effect was instantaneous. Heavy, irresistible waves of dreamless sleep broke over him, and he fell back onto his pillows and thought no more. And that's the end of that chapter 36 of Parting of the Ways. Now, why, what are some big key moments that we just learned in that chapter? Number one, the ministry is not going to be helpful whatsoever. Straight refuses to uh, accept the fact that Voldemort's back. A couple other things, we start seeing people's names mentioned. You know, Arabella Fig, Mundungus Fletcher, Remus Lupin. He said, "Serious, you got to go to these people and get the old group back together." Also, what did Dumbledore tell Snape? This is this is the time if you're ready, if you're prepared. So there's a lot of things that really unpack why that chapter might not seem important at first glance, but it sets the tone for what comes next. What would you add to that, bro? Yeah, no, you you hit that on the head. Um... I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, they're not, you know, fudge is... The way I kind of took from that versus kind of the way it was, you read it for a minute, though, was when fudge was kind of accepting the fact that Voldemort was back, you still caught, like, sort of saw him back down to Dumbledore. Like, wow, like, I can't believe this is really happening. Like, Dumbledore is actually, um, you know like he when he was even saying you know i let you hire werewolves dumbledore i mean you know i've given you the freedom to do this this and this and then even dumbledore is still at the point of you know going head to head standing his ground uh you know with the head of the ministry right now 
uh, it's, it's just like you said. Like, it's a little bit of shocking, I think, to Fudge because he didn't expect him to do that. Um, because Fudge is still... Keep in mind, I mean, he's like the head honcho here. Like, even though Dumbledore, you know, he's the head of Hogwarts, people, I think people forget the role that Fudge really plays. Like, I think they really forget how important he really is. It's kind of like, you know, someone bucking up to, I mean, someone like very high importance. Yeah, not related in like their roles, like not a boss or anything. But it's still like it's Fudge is really kind of taken aback that he's not getting the respect on his his decision there because he's just kind of saying, you know, whatever, like the problem's gone. Like, I don't understand what the problem is like. He yeah, he was a, a murderous. <laughs> he was a murderous, treacherous traitor and get rid of him like it's done. Like, what's the big deal? And then that's when Dumbledore, you know, is really outsmarting him here, really and having him think outside the box. So he's just kind of really pushed back by it. So because of that, I think, now that they've lost, it's this moment is really why he's kind of lost the support of Fudge, which I think is why it trickles down to the ministry, which is why you have this massive ripple effect of what's going to happen in uh, my favorite book. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I can see Fudge's side a little bit. I mean, from what he knows, like you really can't put all the blame on Fudge here because he's just seeing the side he knows. Like he hasn't really taken. He should have been smarter and of course like gotten everyone else's opinion. But you gotta see it from this perspective too. Like this is a guy that's basically had to spend his whole year inside a school, like. <laughs> this is a guy that's over the entire ministry of magic. He's basically sitting here thinking, I'm wasting my time. Like, this is starting to get annoying here. I've been here an entire year for some tournament. Like, I mean, uh, it, that's, that's kind of like Fudge's deal. So I can see both sides to it. I definitely take Dumbledore's side. Um, but because of that reason, you know, I hate to say it, but it really is Dumbledore's fault why they kind of lose the ministry's support um but i mean it, it had to be said honestly because it would have just caused a a massive mess if if we thought you know deathly hallows no spoiler alert was bad enough like it could have been a lot worse if dumbledore didn't stand his grounds uh in this exact moment it's one of those things like a butterfly effect if dumbledore doesn't make stand his ground to fudge I mean the alliances that could have been made there uh, you know the battle of Hogwarts that we'll talk about much later on it could have even turned out a lot worse than it did so yeah I mean that's kind of my thoughts on that I would say like fudge wasn't there the whole year he was only there for like the three tasks now he just said they stayed the those tasks only took place on one day, like the 24th of like a couple months, and they're like three months in between. So he really wasn't at Hogwarts all that much. But he like, and the, the other part is that too is if you're going to talk about like the Triwizard Tournament, well, the Ministry has the one that had the idea to put it on. Like it's his own fault. It's his own creation. Like and so, I mean, at the end of the day, like he's basically the leader of the government in you know England, I guess I could say, because um, that's part of the Prime England, Minister, right? But right. 
the but. magical realm, I guess you would say. Yeah, the whole I guess minister of ministry of magic. Yeah, you're right. Like of of, of all of all of the magic people in the world. Like I I just didn't know if maybe like there are other ministers in different countries that maybe you don't know about. I'm gonna do some research on that because I don't think one person controls all of it in that area i don't know that's a good i don't that's i don't good. think he does either like i think that's a good point how we've talked about egypt and stuff before yeah like brazil um, and stuff yeah my point is i just see fudge's perspective like i i mean you've been here i'm not saying he's been there every waking moment of the entire year i'm just saying like he's been there for three casts you got to think too if you even think back to the other books even going back to chamber of secrets he keeps having to come back to this place this is one school in an entire magical realm, and this guy is the head honcho. I would be thinking here, too, like, I'm sick of dealing with this place's problems. Like, every time I turn around, y'all have another issue going on. Like, y'all need to get <laughs> your shit together. Like, that's literally... Like, and I see Fudge's perspective, not because I agree with him, but because if I was in that situation, too, like, and Dumbledore's over here backing up at me, I'd be like, dude, you're a principal. Like, you sh I should be telling you exactly what to do. If I want you fired and the school shut down, I'm going to do it. But, like, at least fudge to the point is, like, like wow, I do respect this guy. You know, you are uh, part of the wizard <laughs> Wizards Confederation. Like, I'm just going to kind of, like, back off here. Honestly, that kind of says some something for fudge. Like, I don't agree with the way he handled it because I think the way he handled it was wrong. But kind of look at the presidents, right? Like, all the presidents we've had throughout history, like, even the some of the best ones have made mistakes before. I'm just saying, like, dude, this is a tiny, not tiny school. Like, of course, like, Hogwarts is massive wizard school. But I'm just saying, like, there's other shit this dude has to deal with, like, that people aren't thinking about. Like, his whole job isn't to go play safety patrol on this damn school because they can't get their shit together. So he went in there and took a Dementor from Azkaban and said, you know what? Wiping my hands with this shit. Excuse my language. Suck out that motherfucker's soul. We are done in here. I am going back. I'm going to go reinstitute the fact that magic carpets aren't allowed. I'm going to go fly on my broomstick back to my office. Kick up my feet because I am done for the day. All I wanted to do was have this ceremony and drop off some gold so I show some good public face. I don't even get to do that because Mr. Albus Dumbledore that's been around for years that I thought would have his shit together on this can't even get this shit solved properly where we can have a proper ceremony. You know what? Fine. Suck out his soul. I don't even care anymore. So <laughs> my point is I don't agree with the way it was handled, but I can also see his point. But I mean, you just would that, be like, pretty annoyed you, you, too at that. At, at that. But moment. like that's not. It goes about beyond annoyance when you realize like when they're trying to tell you that the darkest wizard of all time is back. That goes beyond annoyance. So you should at least investigate that. Maybe you should take a look at that a little bit deeper than like nah. And then you even remember what it said when like Snape showed him the dark mark. It said he like he was looking at Snape as though he didn't take a single word of what Snape said into his brain at all. He was like, nope, I'm just gonna ignore it. Like this is this is this is the epitome of the what you were here for. You're the minister of magic to keep people safe and the magical community safe. Like that's what you're there for. And they're telling you, showing you all this evidence, and you're just like, nope, 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 nope. Voldemort's not back. Harry's a liar. Dumbledore, you're old. I agree with that to an extent. Like what I'll say about that is, 
keep in mind, this isn't exactly like the first time people have been saying like the Dark Lord is back, right? Like he's been, this dude has been hearing this ever since literally decades ago when we saw the memory with the Penzeev. Do you know how many times someone's probably come up to Fudge in the ministry and be like, the Dark Lord is back? And he's like, okay, well, we've heard that before. You think I really care about what some dude that's been disguised in Polyjuice Potion the whole time just to remain safe when Crouch knew it was his own son? Like, he probably just been hiding it the whole time, hiding him with Polyjuice Potion. Do I think he's really working for the Dark Lord? No, but if he caused the whole problem with the Quidditch and caused all these problems with these people to be killed, I'm just going to solve this problem myself. Suck out his soul. Let's get done That's with it. That's not the the problem is is that this is like this is something that definitely needs a further investigation and just of shutting your face to it because there's a multitude of evidence. It's not just this guy laying here. It's literally Harry's recollection of everything that just happened. The story's matching up. The fact that Barty Crouch was out of Azkaban to begin with. Why? How? Why the heck did he get out of like Mr. Crouch release him from Azkaban? Like, there's no, there, there's no like sort of um, inquiry. He he doesn't want to deal with it because he doesn't want to be the one that caused panic to like him to return all over again. It's like this, this is something that has to be dealt with. This is this is life and death. And it wasn't decades ago. It was only 13 years. I see what you're saying. Don't get me wrong. I agree with what you're saying. I'm just saying people are looking at Fudge like he's some bad guy for the way he handled it. No, I see exactly what he did. He was annoyed, pissed off because he's had to deal with this shit for an entire year. I'm flying back over to your place to go play babysitter again because Dumbledore can't get his shit handled together. Because in a way, I gotta say this. No, yeah, fuck this. Excuse my language. Sorry, I hate uh, getting... Uh, using bad language, but this is like the problem. This goes back all the way to Sorcerer's Stone because, and I'm not defending Fudge's side at all. I think Dumbledore took the exact route he should have, and I stand with Dumbledore on that. My problem is Fudge in his mind. Let's dive into this character's intellectuality in his mind right now. He's thinking, dude, you've had problems for the past four years no, now. No, it's not. That's just wrong. It's just factually inaccurate. It's not. It's not the. That's not what he's having problems with. He doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to be the minister. He wants to be remembered as a good minister of magic, not the one that brought back, like the one that Voldemort came back to life during. It's nothing to do with what's been happening at the school. There's nothing to do with that at all. It's everything to do with like I don't want to deal with the fact that Voldemort might possibly be back because then people are gonna look to me as it happened on my watch. That's why he just wants to ignore it. Yeah, it which the goes into public face, which goes into that's a whole other side that he has to deal with. Dumbledore's right. not having to deal with that shit. Because he doesn't want to. He, he, everyone wanted Dumbledore. Of course like, he doesn't want to. But like, I'm, talk, I'm to talking about that. no. But I'm saying like people wanted Dumbledore to be Minister of Magic, and he chose against it because he's doing other things to work against. Like he's doing the actual work. He doesn't have to sit down and play politics with everybody. He actually gets to go on and do it. It's not that Dumbledore's like, oh, I'm too good for this. My point is set is simply this. Fudge does not want to deal with it or maybe the one that Voldemort comes back during his tenure because that makes him look bad that he wasn't doing enough to prevent it from happening. He does not like that's the biggest thing. He wants to make sure everyone he like is seen as a good minister of magic. Remember what he says. He says, I'd be sacked for even suggesting it in terms of removing the Dementors from Azkaban. Son, and a voice of the giants, people like, like like people don't like them, Dumbledore. Like He's only worried about how people view him. It's all selfish. It has nothing to do with like, I, him being tired of stuff from the that, school. But here's the other problem with that, is that's so much easier said than done. 
You just said like how Dumbledore didn't want to be the head of Ministry of Magic because he didn't want to deal with that side. Like it's so much easier for Dumbledore to be like, this is what you need to do. You need to do it. Okay, Dumbledore. Well, like, let's see you go, like, deal with all these other ministers that are going to... It's basically like the House and the Senate. Do you want to be the guy that stands there that gets hated on the whole time and then your career is completely screwed? No, like, I completely get it. Over, like, I'm not saying I agree with him. 100%. I think Dumbledore did the right thing, and I think he said what had to be said, which is where you see this side of Dumbledore that should have come out. But at the same time, from Fudge's perspective, he's like... Who are you, some principal of a school, to be coming at me who's basically like the president of the United States? Like, do you realize who you're talking to right now? Like, you obviously got some head on your shoulders, because I agree you could have had this position, but coulda, woulda, shoulda, you don't, and now you're talking down to me when you're literally having to look up at me at this point. My whole point is, I'm not saying I agree with Fudge. I absolutely do not. I think he I took get what it your the point is. I'm not. I I, under, I I got the conception of what your point you're trying to make. I disagree with the point you're trying to make. I don't believe it had anything to do with Fudge being tired of the shit that he had to deal with, and then being like, "Oh, you guys figured it out. I'm tired of dealing with this with this school. There's so many things going on." I disagree with that point. That doesn't have nothing to do with it. Had everything to do with the fact that he he did not want to accept the fact that Voldemort was back because it would ruin his tenure as prime minister, and everyone would have noted that this is what happened during your watch. You did this, Mister Fudge. Then you allowed Voldemort to come back. I disagree with you. Then I agree uh, with you. That's fine. I disagree with you hundred percent. Great. Then that's fine. Well, anyone else can debate upon that. Hundred percent like, disagree. Because like, that's like, just. Nothing yeah. to do with like, oh, this school is so annoying. I don't want to deal with this school. It's nothing to what do with that. What evidence at all. of Voldemort being back is there besides the dark mark? Like everyone, are you serious? Everything that's happened since book one has been a slow rise up to it. Literally, yes. Did Harry, Harry like, seeing? No, 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 no. I'm not saying about like what they've heard of. I'm saying like what has Fudge seen with his own eyes besides the dark mark? Like all these things have been stories from Dumbledore and Harry. I'm not saying there's not been evidence, because there definitely has, but I'm saying with his own two eyes, what has Fudge seen besides the dark mark that Snape just showed him? Like, this could all be fairy tales for all these years, according to Don't you think at that point in time, if it's even a possibility, you need to investigate it? Fairy tales or not. That's a serious thing. Yeah, but that's thing. not the point. That's like, where that's I just like, said. That's like, basically that. stating that like in, in the United States right now, if there is a terroristic threat and they just ignore it and don't even do anything about it because like, well, it could be real. It could be fake. Who cares? No, you still investigate the fuck out of it. Like, exactly. it's not something I just you just put into with it. you on that part. I'm but, not saying I agree with his decision. I'm saying I understand his perspective. Because his perspective like is purely selfish. Bad dude, but they're it was not taking all, into all accounts. It's all self-serving. It was no sort of perspective that makes Fudge a relatable character or why he would have made the decisions that he made. None of them, none of those things are acceptable. He's acting out of self-serving behavior. That's what I'm saying. Is it self-serving behavior or is it what the ministry would have gone with? Because we it's haven't even heard day. the ministry. Because, side. listen, if Fudge takes the chance, and remember what Dumbledore says, if you act now, act fast, and take these steps that I'm going to tell you, you will be remembered as the greatest minister in office or out, as the one that like, helped prevent Voldemort from returning to full power. If you don't, this is what's going to happen. And he didn't want to deal with the potential of like failing and make, looking miserable. So he's like, you know what? 
I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend that everything you said is a lie. The Snape ran up to him and showed him the dark mark on his arm pure as day. And he didn't even, like, he, like, looked at him as if he didn't understand what Snape was saying. He said, looked at him I mean, as though yeah, nothing. I don't agree with that. It's but just, I'm just saying, like, there, I can see why you would take... I'm not saying he made the right decision. I've told you I that. know you're not, but you're saying you're trying to see it from his side, but he has no reasonable side. He has no, no reasonable... No, I'm saying I can see why you would take caution... I could definitely see that because you, this dude just comes out of nowhere throwing crap at you, like where he's like, "You need to do this, this, and this." It's not like Fudge was sitting there with his own eyes in the middle of Tom Riddle's graveyard, watching everything go down, like applauding from the audience next to Lucius Malfoy. No, that's not what happened. He like just show like can't like literally sees Harry teleport there, and then he's like, "Oh my gosh!" Like trying to take everything in on what's going on. And then he just got sick of dealing with it, which that's a bad character trait by a minister, of course. Um, but I'm just saying, like, if you were probably under the stress this guy was, you wouldn't want to deal with it either. Yeah, but that's the point. Like, that's your job. <laughs> like, you have to deal with it. Like, they yeah, really not, I agree with you on that. That made <laughs> like, him a very bad minister of magic. He should have never been in that position. I'm just saying... Like, everyone acts like it's so much easier said than done. I'm not saying Dumbledore does, because Dumbledore probably... Dumbledore knows what it takes. He wouldn't be asking something like this unless he knew, right? And what it was worth, which I agree with. But I'm just saying, everyone always reads this part like, Fudge is some terrible guy. Well, let's not sit here and act like everything's so much easier said than done. If you really look from Fudge's perspective, I know, like... 80% of the people out there probably would have just taken the easy way out and done the same damn thing. Just ignore all the evidence that there is. And here's another thing. I've got realistic. stuff for, like, you know there's like, like uh, plot holes of what could have... Yeah. I was thinking, like, like too, like, I wanted to save this for the plot holes part, but it's kind of relevant here. They could have e very easily shown visual evidence. And why I say that is think about the Pensieve. If they would have just taken out the memory of what happened in the graveyard from Harry's brain or doing it for Barty Crouch and everything that happened there, they could have just put it in the Pensieve's scene for themselves firsthand, like the recollection of what happened. Like I do I do agree with that. And actually like, that supports more of Dumbledore's point because he was even like, if you come to my office, I'll even show you. So yes, I, I do agree with that 100%. What I'm do you want to deal saying, with it? <laughs> I can see where... But just be like, you know, I'm tired of this. Like, this is annoying. <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't have done... Uh, trust me, I wouldn't have done that. I don't know, because I'm not in those shoes. Like, I'm a realistic person. But, um, yeah, anyone in that position <laughs> shouldn't have acted that way. You definitely have to investigate 100%. I'm just saying, like, he's not a bad guy for just kind of being taken aback. Like, dude, like... Do you realize who you're talking to right now? Like, he's kind of, if you think about it, Fudge was more, like, so shocked because coming from the pulling rank perspective, like, he was more like, I can't believe you're talking to me like this. Like, you're trying to overcome my own order that I just gave on myself. Like, who are you to tell me what to do? That's what I'm saying. I've never said <laughs> it shouldn't have been investigated and he responded the right way. I'm I'm nowhere close to anyone being of that level, and I even know just in my own job, like if there's an issue or something like that going on, you always investigate it, no matter what, and you suck it up and you get over it. And if it's going to be a long night, well, it's going to be a long night. 
But I'm just saying, like, so many people would sit here and be like, oh, Fudge is terrible. He's a piece of trash. Like, I can't believe he would do that. He would, you know, go against these giants. He would do that. No, like, people aren't seeing it from the fact that the dude's probably exhausted. And he feels like he's spending most of his time in a place that is a waste of time. Yeah, the thing is, though, on top of that, and then we'll get back to finishing up, because we're almost done, guys. We got the we got one more chapter, then we got our fun stuff at the end. But um, but this is good. We haven't had any controversy. I know. It's been a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Man, one of the things... getting a little heated up in here. Yeah. Fire. Goblet of fire. <laughs> yeah. The fiery stuff on it. It's just... But I, I do agree with you 100% with your point. All I was saying is I'm not I don't agree with Fudge at all and I don't think he is a good guy because if this is like really I don't think I it's not that I don't think he's a good guy I think it's the fact that he shouldn't be in that position because he definitely should have responded accordingly because you know what your procedures and protocols are I'm just simply saying people instantly take double door side on this and don't look from both perspectives I can see why the dude would get exhausted and not want to deal with it. And just one thing to the point that I want to talk about, to the point you made about, you know, the, the whole ranking, like pulling rank, like, hey, I'm the minister, you're a headmaster. Well, but keep in mind, and we learn about it more as the series goes on, like in the next book, you hear about it a couple times. But like, Cornelius Fudge has, ever since he got elected minister of magic, he's been asking Dumbledore for advice. Always asking Dumbledore, what should I do here? What should I do here? And it, it shows in the next book, and I'll, I'll point it out. But, like, that, like he's constantly going to Dumbledore for advice when stuff happens. So, like, the fact that Dumbledore's like, hey, like, I'm trying to give you advice again, and you're not taking it because you're taking it as me trying to boss you around. No, this is what needs to happen. Like, if you want any chance of, like, saving the world as we know it, these are the, the steps you need to take. Like, you've always come to me for help in the past. You like you know very well that if I had run for Minister of Magic, you wouldn't hold the office that you do now. Like, so if anything, it's, it's Fudge is threatened by Dumbledore. He's threatened by him, always has been, ever since the beginning. I but like, do agree yeah. with that. Yes. I, I, sorry, I keep interrupting. No, you're good. You're good. It's just it. I'm just saying, and I do agree with you 100%. And I think Dumbledore has every right to do that based on what he's accomplished but at the same time i could see why fudge is basically looking at dumbledore like let's put this in perspective you have to manage a school i have to manage an entire government it's not as easy said as done like that's kind of the thing here what fudge is trying to say like I'm not saying his decision is right at all, but it's also not exactly an easy order that he that Dumbledore is giving him. And I think that's where, you know, Fudge really does kind of take a step back and realizes, like, I, he gets pissed off, but as we see in kind of the later books going all the way up into Half-Blood Prince, which we're not giving away spoilers and stuff, but I think that's why he does come around. It takes him a long time. But I'm just saying that I can see why he would kind of get pissed off at this moment and not want to think things through because the dude has been working his ass off for a tournament? A tournament, bro. Like, you're talking about the dude that's the head of the government is having to keep flying back and forth 
to manage a school basically like so he can go to make sure everything goes well for the NCAA college final football championship like do you think the president of the United States really gives a shit who wins the college football championship like it's important but I think he's just getting pissed because he's not thinking through things clearly like he should be just like you're saying but I think through his mind is he's saying you know screw you Albus you're not helping me out at all because you have no idea the other shit I gotta deal with like I think it's more like that I don't think it's more of like oh he's a bad guy and doesn't agree with this stuff I think secretly deep down he really does which is why he comes around in the later books I think it's just more of like an instant thought of you know, screw you, man. Like, you don't know what I'm having to deal with here. It's kind of like that, which I know Albus does. I think it's just that thought of, you know, we're not in the same position, so don't act like you know me kind of thing. Yeah, but like, like I said, like he's always asking him for advice and what to do on situations. Dumbledore's trying to help him out. And then you see like the way like it even gets worse, especially in the next book of all the things they strip Albus of, like all the titles, all his like offices. Like yeah. literally Fudge is doing it like because he's being a douche. Like he doesn't want to accept yeah. the facts. Like it's he's just straight. Up. Like I, I don't just, and I don't agree with that part at all. At all. He, yeah, I'm I just, just saying just his instant thought process. I can but see you know, why that's that that's why I, that was my, the point I made that because it's like it's not just instant because he continuously does it it's like not like that and then all of a sudden he goes back to him like hey man like let's talk this out I shouldn't have been so rash like it's no he like doubles down on it and continues to be even worse in the next book like so, last quick question and then we'll move on <laughs> this brings up a good point that you mean by that then do you think Fudge is threatened by Dumbledore yes a hundred percent a hundred percent think he's on because he knows most wizards would think that Albus would be more capable of handling a Voldemort's return than Fudge would be. So he's very threatened. Yes, like a million percent believe that he's threatened by Dumbledore. See, if you give it that perspective, I can see your entire point, 100%. I just find it hard to believe because, I mean, they've known each other so long you would think they would have become friends by now now don't do the books exactly say these guys are friends definitely not but i'm just saying you would think with the history these two have they would have gotten very close so he wouldn't look at it as a threatening perspective because they're not even in any correlation of a position that's relatable i just think it's more like you know you're not gonna come throw this shit at me (laughs) (laughs) but i I get it i see what you're saying so all right i'll i'll give you 100 percent on that because when you brought that up i think that kind of turned my perspective around Uh, and don't get me wrong i'm no fudge supporter here i just like you know being a neutral party that's dissecting everything you can't just always take someone's side just because Oh, I agree. That's why we present evidence on why we think that way. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you actually take away the beginning part of this last chapter, give my voice a little break, take the beginning part, and then I'll take, <laughs> I'll take over for like the last uh, few pages and close us out, and then we'll get into our, all the fun stuff. Yeah, man. Man, I hit you with like the whipped cream and cherry on top, right as you're like exhausted from taking three <laughs> chapters. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you're not done yet. You're not done yet. <laughs> you're not done yet. <laughs> Okay, I'll start us off here then. Um, 
So kind of one big thing I wanted to bring up starting in chapter 37, the beginning, right? You know, I'm a Cedric Diggory fan. Uh, you brought this up in uh, the movie. I thought they really did a, a really good job with Amos and showing his emotion towards his son and the connection. And I think that would have actually enhanced the book a lot because you even see that perspective of, you know, how Amos, even going back into Azkaban or the beginning of uh, the Goblet of Fire, where he always sticks up for Cedric, like trying to make him one up Harry in this sort of way. So I think that would have helped. Uh, but in the book here, um, it really does show how like when Harry approached them, they didn't blame Harry at all. And, uh, you know, they didn't feel any animosity. So uh, that's an interesting perspective to take, I would say. But it says this is them responding to Harry. And this is Cedric's mom. He suffered very little then, she said. When Harry had told her how Cedric died, after all, Amos, he died just when he'd won the tournament. He must have been happy. So that was a very interesting to take, um, to take on that. But um, so then uh, one thing that Harry does, you know, that is very, um, very, I would say, you know, uh, shows a lot of remorse on his part and respect for Cedric and to his family and how much he cares about him is he gives them the winnings uh, of the tournament. And it says, Harry sees the sack of gold on the bedside. You take this, he muttered to her. It should have been Cedric's. He got there first. You take it. But she backed away from him. Oh, no, it's yours, dear. I couldn't. You keep it. And then, of course, you know, they wind up, he winds up keeping it. But it just really goes to show, like, how much he really cared for Cedric uh, and like, you know, kind of what's going through his head right now. And, and even I think Harry kind of feels even a little bit of regret on telling, you know, uh, Cedric, let's take this, take the cup at the same time. Because think about it, if Harry had just taken the cup, Cedric wouldn't have died. Like, honestly, like, it's real. I hate to say it this way, and it's really not on Harry because he's not the one that killed him. But, like, all it, it really just shows how one choice could have literally saved a life. Funny, Al, Alba said in the last book, you know, you can save more than one innocent life tonight. But, um, hey, hey, you know, he did the moral thing. So, uh, and then Miss Weasley, you know, had that meeting with Dumbledore asking if Harry could stay over the summer with the uh, summer with them. And Dumbledore, you know, this is kind of a big point, says no, he wants him to stay with the Dursleys. And that plays with a, a big part into the next book. So, and then of course Hagrid, you know, he rekindled with Madame Maxine. <laughs> uh, and he says, been having a couple of limpy, Hagrid said, referring to Madame Maxine. She's just left. Who? Madame Maxine, of course, said Hagrid. And he tells Harry that Dumbledore has a job for him over the summer. Got a little job for me over the summer, said Hagrid. A secret thing. I'm not supposed to talk about it, no. Not even to let Olympia, a Madame Maxine to year, might be coming with me. I think she will. I think I got her persuaded. And they're like, is it to do with Voldemort? <laughs> Hagrid flinched at the sound, sound of that name. Um, mm, might be. Uh, said evasively. Now, who'd like to come and visit Last Scrute with me? 
I was joking. I was joking. <laughs> he added hastily, seeing the looks on their faces. So you already got this sense of like, kind of got the sense, you know, Hagrid's going to work on that whole giant thing, right? Um, <laughs> hey, so punny there. Giant thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, which I thought this next part was really cool. Uh, you know, in order to, you know, Cedric's my boy. I always hold my wand in there to him, man. I did it last time. And, uh, you know, in order to celebrate and uh, kind of remembrance of Cedric and respect to him, uh, there's no house colors at this uh, final feast celebration, right? Um, they just have all black drapes in remembrance of him. And um, then, of course, the real Mad-Eye Moody is there, and he's at the staff table. And, um, of course, you know, he's super twitchy and stuff because he's been locked up <laughs> for months, man. So uh, he, he's already, like, he's already, like, paranoid as it is, like, in regular life. Now added to the fact that he actually got attacked by dark wizards and imprisoned, like, he's, like, paranoid on steroids. <laughs> he freaked out. Probably the worst place to be is around kids. <laughs> but, all right, we'll take it. <laughs> Good point, uh, dude. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, here's a big one is Professor Kakarov, his chair is empty. So kind of wondering what's going on with that. But uh, Snape is sitting next to McGonagall. It says, his expression was difficult to read. His eyes lingered on Harry for a moment as Harry looked at him. He looked as sour and unpleasant as ever. Harry continued to watch him long after Snape had looked away. What was it Snape had done on Dumbledore's orders the night that Voldemort had returned, and why? Why was Dumbledore so convinced that Snape was truly on their side? He had to be their spy. Dumbledore had said so in the Pensieve. Snape had turned spy against Voldemort? At great personal risk? Was, was that the job he had taken up again? He had made contact with the Death Eaters, perhaps? pretended that he had never really gone over to Dumbledore, that he had been like Voldemort himself. Uh, and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, binded this whole time. But it's, that's what I was going to say about that is that's, you know, if you've read the series, always remember that moment because that's a major foreshadowing moment there like super major and you know the reason that kind of stopped me in my tracks for a minute is just because everyone knows that as listening to our podcast i'm like a big snape guy like besides hermione granger he's my second favorite character in this whole series and uh it really makes you stop <laughs> because uh you know uh we're gonna get into that a long time from now <laughs> so don't forget that moment but so Dumbledore raises his glass to Cedric's death you know they're paying respects for him uh, and Harry catches like a glimpse of Cho in the crowd that's kind of a foreshadowing moment there for my favorite book yeah move <laughs> club <laughs> yeah or no we do the button song now the button <laughs> song it's been a minute uh, but uh, so there were tears you know just pouring down Cho's face and it, it it really shows at this point too like even like the small interaction that she had with cedric like how much they really respected this guy and how much of a connection he really did make uh to the other students there even though he is kind of one of these characters like we don't get to see it's kind of like we almost didn't get enough of his personal life because you kind of just see him from the outside 
throughout the book but um so this part's cool he says i would like you to all please stand and raise your glasses to cedric diggory cedric was a person who exemplified many of the qualities that distinguish the hufflepuff house double lore continued he was a good loyal friend a hard worker he valued fair play his death was affected you all whether you knew him well or not i think that you have the right therefore to know exactly how it came about Harry raised his head and stared at Dumbledore. Cedric Diggory was murdered by Lord Voldemort. A panic whisper swept the Great Hall. People were staring at Dumbledore in disbelief, horror. He looked perfectly calm as he watched them mutter to themselves in silence. The Ministry of Magic, Dumbledore continued, continued does not wish me to tell you this. It is possible that some of your parents will be horrified that I have done so, either because they will not believe that Lord Voldemort has returned, or because you think I should not tell you so, as young as you are. It is my belief, however, that the truth is generally preferable to the lies, and that only uh, an attempt to pretend that Cedric died as a result of an accident or some sort of blunder of his own is an insult to memory. Stunned and frightened, every face in the hall was turned toward Dumbledore now. Or almost every face. Over at the Slytherin table, Harry saw Draco Malfoy muttering something to Crab and Goyle. Harry felt a hot, sick swoop of anger in his stomach. He forced himself to look back at Dumbledore. There is somebody else who must be mentioned in connection with Cedric's death, Dumbledore went on. I am talking, of course, about Harry Potter. A kind of ripple crossed the Great Hall as a few heads turned in Harry's direction before flickering back to the face of Dumbledore. He risked his own life to return Cedric's body to Hogwarts. He showed in every respect the sort of bravery that few wizards have ever shown in facing Lord Voldemort. And for this, I honor him. Dumbledore turned gravely to Harry and raised his goblet once more Nearly everyone in the Great Hall followed suit. The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. In the light of what's happened on, of Lord Voldemort's return, such ties are more important than ever before. Dumbledore looked from Madame Maxine and Hagrid to Flora Delacour and her fellow Bobatin students to Victor Crumb and the Durmstrangs at, at the Slytherin table. Crumb, Harry saw, looked, looked wary almost frightened as though Dumbledore to say something harsh. Every guest in this hall, said Dumbledore, and his eyes lingered upon the Durmstrang students, will be welcomed back here at any time, should they wish to come. I say to you all, once again in the light of Lord Voldemort's return, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discard and enmity e-n-m-i-t-y can you say that for me enmity 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 yeah yeah i'm the i'm the worst with uh pronunciation is very great we can fight and only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust differences of habit and language are nothing at all of our arms and the identical of our hearts are open it is my belief and never have i so hoped 
that I've mistaken that we are all facing dark and difficult times. Some of you in this hall have already suffered directly at the hands of Lord Voldemort. Many of your families have been torn asunder. A week ago, a student was taken from our midst. Remember, Cedric. Remember. If the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a boy who is good. A kind and brave, because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. And uh, awesome. that's an iconic speech right there. And it is. That's one of my favorite ones. I was going to say that. I'm glad. I'm glad I let you take over that part too, because like you're, you're Cedric's your guy. So I'm glad that that uh, you were able to go through that and, and finish that, because that's that that paragraph right there. That's one of the most memorable speeches in the Harry Potter series. The Remember Cedric one. Fucking awesome. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, man. I'll um, turn it over to you on that. I just wanted to take that because I mean, you know, that's your guy. So, yeah, Cedric's guy. in my top five. So I had to. Uh, Show him some respects, man. It's uh, and you know you'll I have no spoilers alert, but you're gonna have a moment like that in the next book <laughs> at one point. Yeah, so exactly. It's uh, yeah, right. man. It's he's uh, just shows right there, you know, kind of like Eddard Stark, man. He's just one of the good old boys. Like he was never the best, I would say. Just like yeah, he was the most talented. Yeah. But as far as like hardworking and loyal and just a, a down good friend that always did what was right, like that's the kind of guy he was. Awesome. So yeah, we'll 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 close up the book here with the last couple pages. Um, I'll I'll read some of them like verbatim from the book. Other things I'll just point over in bullets. Uh, as right right now they start leaving Hogwarts, right? Like so it's it's not. I'm talking more about like the foreign students, like. Fleur and uh, and Victor Crumb, they start leaving, right? They're going back to Bow Batons. They're going back to Durmstrang. And Fleur comes up and says goodbye to Harry. Make it a pleasure meeting him and all that good stuff. Because remember, Harry's kind of helped her sister out in the second task. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't know how Durmstrang is getting back because Kakaroff had run off. Like you said, the empty staff table, Kakaroff wasn't there. So what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Victor Crumb kind of appears out of nowhere and says, like, well, the students have been steering the ship anyways he never did anything so they don't know about the, who's going to come as a new uh, headmaster but victor kind of took hermione to the side had a little private conversation and ron you could see him a little forced out they're just mad like trying to figure out what are they doing over there huh what are they doing <laughs> like so uh they come back through and then um the one thing i do want to read from victor crumb what he says to harry he says i like diggory said crumb abruptly to harry he was always polite to me always even though I've lost from Durmstrang with Kakarov, he said scowling. So it was pretty cool that uh, he gave his respects to Cedric too in, in that regard. Because from those, from the, like how you see Durmstrang students, it's almost like they make them look like they're almost all Slytherins, right? All bad guys. But yeah. he's pretty cool, man. And then uh, Ron even has like an internal struggle and finds like, dude, can I have your autograph? Like he like he didn't want to because like like the thing with Hermione and him. And again, I'll never understand that Victor Crumb being 18 years old and Hermione being 14, why that was even of love interest, but whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, that was just funny. Like Ron kind of overcame an internal struggle to get his autograph because remember in the beginning, Ron was all about Victor Crumb and how cool he was until until the, they shared a love interest, I'll say. Yeah. So uh, anyways, we'll go on further here. This is where I'm going to start reading from here to the end of the chapter is uh, 
they, they get back onto the um, Hogwarts Express. And when Hermione returned from the trolley and put her money back into her school bag, she dislodged a copy of the Daily Prophet that she had been carrying in there. Harry looked at it, unsure whether he really wanted to know what it might say, but Hermione, seeing him, looking at it, said calmly, There's nothing in there. You can look for yourself, but there's nothing at all. I've been checking every day, just a small piece the day after the third test, saying you won the tournament. They didn't even mention Cedric. Nothing any about anything of it. If you ask me, if Fudge is forcing them to keep quiet. Well, he'll never keep Rita quiet, said Harry. Not on a story like this. Oh, Rita hasn't written anything at all since the third test, said Hermione in an oddly constrained voice. As a matter of fact, she said with her voice trembling slightly, Rita Skeeter isn't going to be writing at all for a while. Not unless she wants me to spill the beans on her. What are you talking about? I found out how she was listening on private conversations when she wasn't, wasn't supposed to be coming onto the ground, said Hermione in a rush. And Harry had the impression that Hermione had been dying to tell him this for days, but that she had restrained herself in light of what, everything else that had happened. How is she doing it, Harry said at once. How did you find out, said Ron, staring at her. Well, it was you really, Harry, who gave me the idea. Did I? How? Bugging, Hermione said happily. But you said that didn't work. Oh, not electronic bugs, said Hermione. No, you see, Rita Skeeter... Her voice trembled with quiet triumph. Is an unregistered animagus. She can turn, Hermione pulled a sealed glass jar out of her bag, into a beetle. You're kidding, said Ron. You haven't. She's not. Oh, yes, she is, said Hermione happily, brandishing the jar at them. Inside were a few twigs and leaves and one large, fat beetle. That's never... You're kidding, Ron whispered, lifting the jar to his eyes. No, I'm not, said Hermione, beaming. I caught her on the windowsill in the hospital wing. Look very closely. You'll notice the markings around her antennae are exactly like those foul glasses she wears. Harry looked and saw that she was quite right, and he also remembered something. There was a beetle on the statue the night we heard Hagrid telling Madame Maxine about his mom. Exactly, said Hermione. And Victor pulled a beetle out of my hair after we had a conversation by the lake. And unless I'm much mistaken, Rita was perched at the top of the windowsill in divination class the day your scar hurt. She's been buzzing around for stories all year. So when we saw Malfoy under that tree, Ron said slowly, he was talking to her in his hand, Hermione said. He knew, of course. That's how he's been getting all those nice little interviews with the Slytherins. They wouldn't care, though, that she was doing anything illegal as long as they were giving her horrible stuff about us and Hagrid. Hermione took the glass jar back from Ron and smiled at the beetle, which buzzed angrily against the glass. I told her I'll let her out when we get back to London. I put an unbreakable charm on the jar, you see, so she can't transform. And I've told her she's to keep her quill quiet to herself for a whole year and see if she can't break the habit of writing horrible lies about people. Smiling serenely, Hermione placed the beetle back inside her school bag. The door of the compartment slid open. Very clever, Granger, said Draco Malfoy. Crabbe and Goyle were standing behind him, all three of them looking more pleased with themselves, more arrogant, and more menacing than Harry had ever seen them. So, said Malfoy, slowly advancing slightly into the compartment and looking around slowly at them a smirk quivering on his lips. You caught some pathetic reporter in Potter's Dumbledore's favorite boy again. Big deal. His smirk widened. Crab and Goyle leered. Try not to think about it, are we? Said Malfoy, softly looking around at all three of them. Trying to pretend it hasn't happened? Get out, said Harry. He had not been this close to Malfoy since he had watched him muttering to Crab and Goyle during Dumbledore's speech about Cedric. He could feel a kind of ringing in his ears. His hand gripped his wand under his robes. You've picked the losing side, Potter. I warned you. I told you you ought to choose your company more carefully, remember? When we met on the train at the first day of Hogwarts? I told you not to hang around with riffraff like this, he jerked his head at Ron and Hermione. Too late now, Potter. They'll be the first to glow now that the Dark Lord's back. Mudbuds and muggle lovers first. Well, second, Diggory was the f- 
and it sounded as though someone exploded a box of fireworks within the compartment. Blinded by the blaze of the spells that had blasted from every direction, deafened by a series of bangs, Harry blinked and looked down at the floor. Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle were all lying unconscious in the doorway. He, Ron, and Hermione were all on their feet, all three of them having used a different hex. Nor were they the only ones to have done so. Thought we'd see what those three were up to, said uh, Fred matter-of-factly stepping onto Goyle into the apartment. He had his wand out, and so did George, who was careful to tread on Malfoy as well as he followed Fred inside. Interesting effect, George said, looking down at Crabbe. Who used the Fernunculus curse? Me, said Harry. Odd, said George lightly. I used the jelly legs. Looks as though those two shouldn't be mixed. He seems to have sprouted little tentacles all over his face. Well, let's not leave them here. They don't add much to the decor. So Ron, Harry, and George kicked and rolled and pushed the unconscious Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, each of them whom looked distinctly worse for the jumble of jinxes with which they had been hit, out into the corridor. Then they came back into the compartment and rolled it shut. Exploding snap, anyone? said Fred, pulling out a pack of cards. They were halfway through their fifth game when Harry decided to ask them. You gonna tell us then, he said to George, who you were blackmailing? Ah, said George darkly, that. It doesn't matter, said Fred, shaking his head impatiently. It wasn't anything important. Not now, anyways. We've given up. But Harry, Ron, and Hermione kept asking, and finally Fred said, All right, all right, if you really want to know, it was Ludo Bagman. Bagman, said Harry sharply. Are you saying he was involved in... Nah, said George gloomily. Nothing like that, stupid git. He wouldn't have the brains. Well, what then? Fred hesitated. You remember that bet we had with him at the Quidditch World Cup about how Ireland would win and Buck Crumb would get the snitch? Yeah, said Harry and Ron slowly. Well, the git paid us in leprechaun gold he'd caught from some Irish mascots. So? So, said Fred impatiently. It vanished, didn't it? By next morning it had gone. But it must have been by accident, mustn't it? said Hermione. George laughed very bitterly. Yeah, that's what we thought at first, too. We thought if we just wrote to him, told him he made a mistake, he'd cough up. But nothing doing. Ignored our letter, and we kept trying to talk to him about it at Hogwarts, but he was always making some excuse to get away from us. In the end, he turned pretty nasty. Told us we were too young to gabble, and he wasn't giving us anything. So we settled for our running back, said George, glowering. He didn't refuse, gasped Hermione. Right in one. But that was all your savings, said Ron. Tell me about it, said George. Of course, we found out what was going on in the end. Lee Jordan's dad had a bit of trouble getting money off Bagman as well. Turns out he's in big trouble with the goblins. Borrowed loads of gold off them. A gang of them cornered him in the woods at the World Cup and took all the gold he had, and it still wasn't enough to cover all his debts. They followed him all the way to Hogwarts to keep an eye on him. He's lost everything gambling. Hasn't got two galleons rubbed together. And you know how the idiot tried to pay the goblins back? How, said Harry. He put a bet on you, mate. Put a big bet on you to win the tournament. Bet against the goblins. So that's why he was trying to help me win. Well, I did win, didn't I? So he can pay you your gold. Nope, said George, shaking his head. The goblins play as dirty as him. They say you drew with Diggory, and Bagman was betting you'd win outright. So Bagman had to run for it. And he did run for it right after the third task. George sighed deeply and started dealing out the cards again. The rest of the journey passed pleasantly enough. Harry wished it could have gone on all summer, in fact, and he would never arrive at King's Cross. But as he learned the hard way, this, this year, time does not slow down when something unpleasant lies ahead. And all too soon, the Hogwarts Express was pulling in at platform nine and three quarters. The usual confusion and noise filled the corridors, and the students began to disembark. Ron and Hermione struggled out past Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, carrying their trunks. Harry, however, stayed put. Fred, George, wait a moment. The twins turned. Harry pulled his trunk and drew out his twi Triwizard Tournament. Ah. 
The twins turn. Harry pulled out when his trunk and drew out his Triwizard winnings. Take it, he said, and he thrust a sack into George's hand. What? said Fred, looking flabbergasted. Take it, Harry repeated firmly. I don't want it. You're mental, said George, trying to push it back at Harry. No, I'm not. You take it and get inventing. It's for the joke shop. He is mental, Fred said in an almost awed voice. Listen, Harry said firmly, if you don't take it, I'm throwing it down the drain. I don't want it, and I don't need it. But I could do with a few laughs. We could all do with a few laughs. I've got a feeling we're going to need them more than usual before long. Harry, said George weakly, weighing the money in the bag in, the, in his hands. There's got to be a thousand galleons in here. Yeah, said Harry, grinning. Think how many canary creams that is. The twins stared at him. Just don't tell your mom where you got it. Although she might not be so keen for you to join the ministry anymore, come to think of it. Harry, Fred began, but Harry pulled out his wand. Look, he said flatly, take it or I'll hex you. I know some good ones now. Just do me one favor, okay? Buy Ron some different dress robes and say they're from you. <laughs> he left the compartment before he could say another word, stepping over Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle, who were still lying on the floor covered in hex marks. Uncle Vernon was waiting beyond the barrier. Mrs. Weasley was close by him. She hugged Harry very tightly when she saw him and whispered in his ear, I think Dumbledore will let you come stay with us later in the summer. Keep in touch, Harry. See ya, Harry, said Ron, clapping him on the back. Bye, Harry, said Hermione. Then she did something she had never done before and kissed him on the cheek. Harry, thanks, George muttered, while Fred nodded fervently at his side. Harry winked at them and turned to Uncle Vernon and followed him silently from the station. There was no point worrying yet, he told himself as he got back into the Dursley's car. As Hagrid had said, what would come would come, and he would have to be there to meet it when it did. And that is the end of the book of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Yay! Yeah, I mean, <laughs> awesome stuff. It's a it's a big one. It's a, one of those big old books that has a lot of detail, but all of it's super important. And uh, right before we get into our top five magical creatures each, uh, I do want to bring up some plot holes that I had found and want your opinion on and see what we can do from there. Okay. First one is uh, we talked about this at length a little bit. Uh, you and I did outside outside the podcast. So when it said like in page 661 and Harry felt for the third time in his life the sensation that his mind had been wiped of all thought. Like that really wasn't the third time though. When But this is right. when Voldemort put the imperious curse on Harry. Because in chapter 15 and page 232 this paragraph starts the way he talks, Harry muttered as he hobbled out of the Defense Against the Dark Arts class an hour later. Moody had insisted on putting Harry through the paces four times in a row until Harry could throw off the curse entirely. You'd think we're going to be all attacked any second. So obviously that wouldn't be the third time if Moody had already done it to him four times there. Something small, nothing too crazy to the plotline, but still an inconsistency that needs to be addressed. Um, this one, very, very important. This is page 684 regarding when Barty Crouch Jr. was giving his confession of everything that happened. My mother died a short while afterwards in Azkaban. She was careful to drink polyjuice potion until the end. She was buried under my name bearing my appearance. Everyone believed her to be me. My question is, how in the most high security prison was she able to drink polyjuice potions specifically this whole way through? You have, cause like that's something that as you, we learn from Dumbledore, you have got to take continuously throughout the year. How is she finding like the ability to find the Polyjuice Potion? Because if Barty Crouch himself just keeps turning up over and over and over again to visit a son that he's supposed to hate, that's going to draw suspicion. 
So how in the world could she have been careful to take Polyjuice Potion until she died when who's going to make it for her? Who's going to give it to her? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, and it actually it, it plays into... I agree with you 100% because actually it plays into an interesting fact. Um, remember what I said last episode with one of my interesting facts. One of the people in Mungo's hospital, which well, I'll get in more in the interesting facts on Mungo's hospital in Order of the Phoenix, but one of the people I brought up was put in there because she took too much polyjuice potion. It still didn't kill her, but she was like mentally insane. So that like plays right into your point. Like if anything, like it just makes no sense like no. why that would even happen. It's a no max security sense. prison. That's like a prisoner somehow getting like McDonald's cheeseburgers like we saw in the longest yard. Like, you know, like what I mean? Like they're not gonna allow you to just get what you want. You're a prisoner, you're a, you're a convicted death eater. You know, she's not going to be able to consistently take that to keep up that appearance. So that's against consistency there for sure. Yeah, because, I, I mean, it just isn't even possible. Like, <laughs> it won't kill you, but it'll literally turn you insane to the point of, like, you don't even know what you're doing. So, yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. That was good stuff. Yeah, and another one I have, too, and this is something we mentioned briefly, and we don't have to touch on it too much, but, like, how the echo of James Potter knew that the cup was a port key. I'm sorry, like, you've been dead for 13 years. <laughs> you've been dead for 13 years. Like, you don't know, what, like, what's going on here. Like, I don't know. I thought that was kind of ridiculous that they just, like, oh, James is like, oh, take the corp key pack. It'll take you back to Hogwarts. Like, how the hell do you know, James? Like, <laughs> like what, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't yeah. understand that. But um, then the other one I have is the one we did talk about at length when we were kind of arguing about Fudge and Dumbledore. Like, why didn't Dumbledore just take the memory of the confession from Barty Crouch Jr. and putting it in the pensieve, showing Fudge the truth, or Harry's memory of the night? Could have just literally done that. Like, hey, this is little visual evidence that you can see. I can take it from Barty Crouch's brain, put it in here, and you can see everything that happened that he led up to this moment. Like, why did like that's something that you could have just done? I don't know. Like, thought that was weird. <laughs> and then last one here. This is one I'm pretty sure most people didn't even think about. There was never a mention of how Harry got the Marauder's Map back from Mad-Eye Moody. So there was, there was an interview with J.K. Rowling where she like even admitted she forgot to add the part where Harry sneaks back into the office the days following the uh, third task and takes it to, like, from his desk. Yeah. So that that's something that she even admitted that she forgot to add in there. So plot mm-hmm. hole there, Harry just automatically yeah. has the map again in the coming books like for no reason. So yeah. there was never yeah. mentioned him getting it back. So those are my... Those are my plot holes that I had. Uh, well, two of those were pretty big ones. Uh, the rest of them are just kind of small inconsistencies. But did you have any plot holes that you had noticed in there? The only thing I was thinking of is just like how you said with James. Like, how did he know it was a porky? Also, just kind of throwing this out there. Like, isn't it a big of a, a bit of a stretch? Like, I could I can buy it. But that, like, his mom and James just randomly show up in that graveyard in tom riddle's graveyard like i get like cedric because like he just died there and then of course the victims of voldemort but like james and lily like does that make like a whole lot of sense like they're gonna travel that far and just appear like just throwing it out there yes the reason why it does make sense is because of how dumbledore explained how the priori and cantanum works all it does is regurgitate like the last spells that that wand had okay. conjured. That so would like make sense. like those were his last spells, like creating Wormtail's hand, killing 
Cedric, killing Frank, killing Bertha Jorkins, killing Lillian James, because that was those are the first guys. Gotcha, because so. they came through the wand. The wand, it's yeah. It's, like, that's why they're not. Like, yeah, they're not they ghosts. That's what they're near the area or something. Exactly. Okay, that's that why makes, he says they're not yeah. ghosts. Like Dumbledore tells him they're not ghosts. They're echoes of the the forms. So. So here's a quick question. Was he even really speaking to his parents in these victims, or were they just like they're not even like actual souls? Like they're just uh, almost like a, a, I guess you would say, yeah, like an echo, really, or like a reflection of something that he's really just speaking to the priori and cantatum is what he's doing. Like he's speaking to the spell, like so. Technically, he's really not even speaking to his mom and dad. Yeah, uh, the only thing I would say, because I, I honestly don't have a great answer for that, but when um, Dumbledore is telling Sirius, like when they're talking about what the the thing is, it's like it, it keeps like the character and appearance of him. So like if it keeps its character, it could convince me that it would try to help Harry. It's just you can't convince me that it would know that the cup's a portkey. Like yeah. that, that's the, that's the thing. Like. Let me see if yeah. I can find it real quick um, on here while they were talking about it. That's an interesting point. That That's very interesting. Yeah. Let's see. I think I'm going to put it here where we go. But um, There it is. An echo, said Dumbledore, which retained Cedric's appearance and character. So, yeah. So, like, if, like, if it appears, like, if it keeps their character intact, then it would make sense for them to help Harry, but... You just can't convince me that James would know that the cup support key. But, yeah, yeah, but that's yes. Yeah. I agree those, with you 100 percent on that. Mm-hmm. Those are but the, that's really the only plot hole I could come up with. I mean, I thought I was actually really impressed with the way she connected everything together with so much information that is in this book. Um, I mean, this book I thought I thought the book was phenomenal. Like I thought I thought, I gave the book an A. Uh, I mean, 100%. There, I mean. We have to be nitpicky on the show, but I mean, I thought she did really well for like a seven hundred and something page book. One hundred percent. I thought she did a great job. She did very, very well. And what I'm gonna do quickly is just bounce through quick bullets that I made of major foreshadows that, like, just to talk about them. The first one on page six sixty when. Voldemort was quite right when he said his mother was not there to die for him this time. He was quite unprotected. Well, guess what? She did end up showing up <laughs> there anyways. Uh, then page 696, second and third paragraph. Uh, this is talking about Albus and, and Harry talking about Voldemort coming back to life. Said He said my blood would make him stronger than if he used someone else's. Harry told Dumbledore. He said the protection my mother left in me, he'd have it too. And he was right. He could touch me without hurting me. And he touched my face. And for a fleeting second, Harry thought he seemed a gleam, saw, saw something like a gleam of triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. That's a huge shadow because, or a foreshadow because of what ends up happening later on and why that actually goes to work against Voldemort that he did that, used Harry's blood. So that's, there's a foreshadow there, page 707. And this is going to be the fifth paragraph down, no, the third paragraph down is uh, Voldemort, this is, this is with Dumbledore and Fudge arguing each other. Like Voldemort's return, Dumbledore repeated, if you accept the facts straight away, Fudge, and take the necessary measures, we may be able to still save the situation. So, unfortunately, we know that's a foreshadow of that not happening. <laughs> he didn't. He did not take right. the necessary yeah. measures of that. Uh, page seven oh nine. This is going to be the second paragraph down. 
This is with uh, Dumbledore saying, if, you, if your determination to shut your eyes will carry you as far as this, Cornelius, we have reached a parting of the ways. You must act as you see fit, and I shall act as I see fit. And that's a big foreshadow of how differently they react to the return of Voldemort. Uh, page 713. This is going to be the seventh paragraph down. So this is, this is the biggest one, one of the bigger ones that we we're talking about. This is about Snape and Dumbledore, what Dumbledore says. He says, Severus, said Dumbledore turning to Snape, you know what I must ask you to do if you are ready, if you are prepared. That's a monster foreshadow. That's one of the bigger ones of the series, man. That's a good mm -hmm. one. Uh, page 714, I'm going to read the last paragraph because that's, uh, that's pretty... It was just talking about Rita Skeeter, really. It was like there was a loud slamming noise. This is after, like, in the hospital wing. There was a loud slamming noise, and Mrs. Weasley and Harry broke apart. It was Hermione standing by the windows, and she was holding something tight in her hands. That was the foreshadow of Rita Skeeter being the Animagus, and she, she yeah. caught her there in the hospital yeah. wing. Then the very last one I have is uh, on page 717, just uh, the last paragraph through the first paragraph on page 718. It's um, when you talked about it, how... Mrs. Weasley tried to get Harry to go to, to her place right away, and Dumbledore said no. She goes, she went to ask him if you could come to us straight away this summer, he said. Uh, but he chapter? wants you to go back to Is the Dursleys at least at first. Why, said Harry. She said, Dumbledore's got his reasons. I suppose we got to trust him, haven't we? And so that actually goes into what Voldemort was saying in our previous episode about how he cannot touch Harry in his relations care. Um, not even he can touch him there. So those are all the foreshadows that we got there for that one. And now we get on to what the people love the most which is our top five magical creatures brother yeah man oh and just a, a couple last ones of foreshadowing you pretty much got all of them but of course uh just i was just gonna bring up you know uh ron telling floor goodbye and then hermione telling crumb goodbye and like what kind of happens with both of those it's kind of a bit of foreshadowing with those two is future and then of course the last two moments with molly and Hagrid's quotes there foreshadow my favorite book coming up next. But yeah, man, uh, top five magical creatures. You want me to tell you uh, my fifth one first? Just yeah, like man. Start, yep, start us off. Go from five to number one, and we'll just stagger it in order. Go yeah, I have the Sphinx as number five. Uh, nice. I thought it, thought it was cool, man. Uh, something I think the movie could have capitalized on and made it really cool. I mean, I thought the whole idea of like throwing the riddle in there and, and you know, challenging intellectuality along with physical capacity in that task was genius. Uh, as far as like sphinxes, which is cool, I'm a big fan of, you know, ancient Greek and Egyptian mythology and stuff. So I've always thought sphinxes were interesting, especially like the fact of you know i guess uh you know it just had the whole like almost human head and like the body of a lion and all that i just thought it was really cool um i wish it had like attacked somebody so i could see like what kind of effect it would have had like how bad like if it could have attacked like if they could have saved victor crumb for a little while <laughs> like had him like go out that way like that would have really been badass like seeing like a sphinx take out victor crumb that would have been awesome, but I just thought the whole idea of uh, the intellectuality and the whole idea of, you know, it has, like, the body of the lion and, like, the human head um, and how smart they are and, like, you know, how much people think of these things was very cool. So, yeah, man, what about you? For me, it's, it's funny you say that because, like, 
The Sphinx just barely missed my list, and the only reason it missed my list is because it just wasn't there long enough to do anything cool, like you said, for, yeah. like, you know, attacking anyone or anything. It was just... I liked it. It just didn't crack my top five because there's so many magical creatures in this. And that's kind of the same with the Hungarian Horntail. Like, I wanted to put a dragon in, but we had already done a dragon before with Norbert in the mm -hmm. first, like, one. So, like, I can't put that in there either. So, I took those two off my list. But my number my number five uh, magical creature is the Niffler. The Niffler is that little creature who goes around and finds gold coins, like, like finds gold yeah. for treasures. That's so useful to have. Like, imagine having that. Like, you could be a, a very poor wizard and get, they just grab a Niffler and then you know over time become very rich because it finds buried golden treasure for you. So I thought the Niffler was pretty dope. That's my number five. Go on to number four, brother. Number four, I have blast-ended scroots, man. I thought they were pretty cool, pretty yeah. badass, dude. I like that almost like a lobster-looking thing, but with, like, laser heads. It reminded me of Austin Powers. Can we get some sharks with freaking lasers attached to their heads? <laughs> it was, dude, so, and I thought the whole, like, I thought it was so creative the way J.K. Rowling brought it in where Hagrid was, like, teaching his class. And you brought up a really good point to me uh, a couple weeks ago when you rode Hagrid's uh, motorbike adventure. Hagrid's uh, magical motorbike adventure over at Universal Studios. They put that in there. Like, why couldn't you put that in the movie? And so I thought it was creative in the whole way they tied it into Rita Skeeter. So I thought it was great stuff. What about you, man? Number four for me is the Vila. The Vila were really, nice. really cool in the beginning of the Quidditch World Cup. Like, how they enchant you almost the way a siren does in Greek mythology. Like, like you think they're just beautiful creatures and, like, just how they look and, and their appearance. You're drawn and attracted to them to do stupid things that in your brain you normally wouldn't do but then when you anger them they actually come like hawk angry bird like creatures that are crazy so um so cool i, I so actually cool. had vila as my number four so go on to your number three my man number three i have mermaids <laughs> so uh i put the mermaids on there of course like a lot of people feel like they know mermaids but i thought these were really cool because you know how they even had the whole clues of like and we sing underwater <laughs> but i thought it was cool how the way they were described in the book like almost being like these tiny little creatures that were kind of like looking out to like see what was going on like they weren't like you know really like the bad guys but they really wanted to defend their territory and like how harry had to fight them off just to like rise up to the shore because he was going against the rules and then the fact of like they actually like we're fans of hogwarts and you had like the mer chief was like talking to dumbledore about who should you know about how harry did what was right like it it really showed like a creature how they really have more of almost like human qualities uh despite like of course they also capitalized about how creepy they could look underwater um so i thought i thought that was really cool what about you man my number three is the blast ended scroots like that that's my nice. number three i like them because they were kind of characterized differently throughout as i as they grew like they went to like metamorphosis and so like towards the end he basically said in the in the maze it looked like a scorpion with a, like a blast cannon at the back of its like tail yeah. so so the blast ended scroots they they can do a lot of things they like they are big. They have armor that can protect them against spells. Remember, all the best spells are bouncing off its back. Couldn't do anything to it. And it can attack from its end there. So Blast and the Scroots ended up going a little bit higher on my list than they did on yours. They took the number three spot. Uh, so go on to your number two. Yeah. Um, 
Number two, you're gonna hate me for this, but I had to. I had to put a dragon on here. <laughs> I had to, dude. I put the Hungarian Horntail, uh, and it was just because of the whole way. I thought it was so cool the way, um, you know, Harry used uh, like the Axio, Axio curse or like not curse. What was it? Charm. The charm like the spell, yeah. like to conjure like uh, the egg that was there. I thought it was cool and how he used the firebolt um, and using really his skills of Quidditch I thought was so creative because it's not something you think about uh, and just the way it was described by Charlie Weasley was freaking vicious man like uh, I mean I, it's not as I think Drogon could take him down any day however I thought it was pretty awesome so what about you brother? Number two for me is the mirror people. Like you were talking about, I, I really enjoyed the mirror people because, the number one, they've got beautiful enchanting voices, but did you see the, remember the way they were described in the book as, like, they have the, their whole community underwater, and, like, they, they, they have, like, a chieftain who like, can go up and speak to Dumbledore in between it, like, but they yeah. look, like, super physically imposing things. Like, Harry was scared of them. <laughs> And you should yeah. be like those things. Like if they wanted to hurt you, they would. Like the only knock on them is that they're afraid of magic. They don't like wands. Like remember he pulled the wand and they kind of like backed up. Like oh okay, but like man, they were they were there like imposing cool ass things. And like it's one of those creatures that you don't see often in a lot of other productions. And I think it, the the originality of it, like like how creative it was, added mm-hmm. to the fact that I really enjoyed them how they were portrayed and the short amount of time they had in the book. Uh, that's what gave it the number two spot for me. So uh, give him your number one. Yeah, man. Uh, number one, I am going to read this little part I pulled up on my phone. You can see it on one of the promos. It's the Vila. And just because, like you said, man, like this little paragraph says it all. Like this paragraph says it all. Like how, God, they sound stunning just in my head. Like any gorgeous celebrity that can seductively take in any guy listen to this and y'all can see this all on our instagram uh official ridiculous patronus if you saw us if you follow us there but it says harry's question was answered for him and we've read this on an episode but this shows why they're my number one Vila were women beautiful women the most gorgeous women harry had ever seen except that they weren't they couldn't be human This puzzled Harry for a moment. While he tried to guess what exactly they could be, what could make the skin shine moon bright like that? Their white gold hair fanning out behind them without wind. But then music started and Harry stopped worrying about anything. Anything at all. The Vila had started to dance and Harry's mind had gone completely and blissfully blank. All that mattered in this world was that he kept watching the Vila because if they stopped dancing, terrible things would happen. And as the Vila danced faster, wild half-formed through Harry's dazed mind, he wanted to do something very impressive. Right now, jumping from the box into the stadium seemed like a good idea. Would it be good enough? Harry, what are you doing? Hermione's voice echoed next to him. The music stopped. Harry blinked. He was standing up and on one of his legs was resting on the wall of the box. Next to him, Ron was frozen in an attitude that looked as though he's about to dive off the springboard. Like, dude, like it. Dude, these 
these women are like so sexy like they're just sucking these guys in man like they are they do not care about probably the best sports match football game soccer game that's about to happen right in front of them no rugby game no one cares they're there for these ladies and these ladies alone like hypnotism man i thought it was so creative and it, uh you know i wish they were in the film they could have done so much with that like like you were saying they need to make a, a harry potter hbo series because even if you got to cut that out i can't even understand you know time conflicts but like i even feel like it brings in more of that adult vibe like this is when you see those characters grow up uh so i gave him number one man i thought it was fantastic so creative nice my number one is nagini voldemort snake nice like that one had to be Amazing. number one for me just because not only is it way larger and you know more imp- physically imposing than any other snake that we've come across outside the basilisk but basilisk not isn't really a snake so <laughs> like th- this thing is like voldemort's right hand and like it's it speaks to him and he kind of can take part in of taking over her body sometimes too he was mentioning and then of course what we learn way later on what she turns out to be as well i couldn't do anything but put nagini as number one um for for this one here so one more time for the people well deserved for sure one more time for the people i'm just going to list my five to one no explanation i'm just going to read it five so for me my number five spot niffler number four vila Number three, Blast Ended Scroots. Number two, Mere People. Number one, Nagini. Tackle nice. your five through one nice. real quick. Five, I got the Sphinx. Four, Blast Ended Scroots. Three, Mere People. Two, Hungarian Horntail. And one, Vila. Nice. Sweet, nice. man. Well, what I'll have you do now, take whatever interesting facts you have, and then I'll close up with my reasons on why Goblet's my favorite book, and then we'll, we'll close out of here and get done for the day. Awesome, man. And yeah, props on Nagini because I didn't even think of that. Like that was, that's phenomenal. That was awesome. Well, mad respect on that one. Uh, So here's what I got here for interesting facts today. You know, this is kind of my like favorite section, Um, but we'll keep it kind of quick, but I got some cool stuff. So the first thing is, you know, they were talking about, you know, Harry had to take that sleeping potion. Well, he didn't have to take it, but Dumbledore wanted him to take it to kind of forget some things, right? I do want to say, by the way, no one actually try magic. It's probably not the best thing. <laughs> Definitely don't go grab a Ouija board or anything. So when I say make these potions, it's all for fun. <laughs> Create it with food coloring. Don't actually try to conjure something. That's where people really have problems. Just fantasy, man. Fantasy. This is all for fun. Fiction. Um, so the sleeping drought potion don't actually go get anesthesia please do not (laughs) do not do that um but the sleeping drought potion you know if you ever want to fall asleep at night um so the ingredients to that which are really cool so the one harry took is called sleeping drought so there's another one i'll get into that's a lot lot stronger Um, but the ingredients for that are four springs of lavender six measures of standard ingredient which is just powdered dry herbs so you can grab some herbs you know, crush them up, put them in there. Uh, two blobs of flobberworm mucus. That's pretty disgusting. And four, I thought this was awesome because, you know, I'm a Game of Thrones guy. Four valerian sprigs. <laughs> so I thought it was cool. Uh, basically what that is is actually there's a colony in Europe called Valeria, ironically. 
and uh, they're, it's found in Europe, and it's just green sprigs, which are like herbs. So you never know where Valeria can be found. Uh, and that's actually, you can find that potion in the book of magical drafts and potions. Um, Hermione actually quoted it as simple but powerful. The way to brew it is you add the four sprigs of lavender to a mordor that you'll need, like a, almost like a cauldron. Add two measures of standard ingredient, which is those herbs to the mordor. Crush it into a creamy paste using a pestle. Add two blobs of flabberworm mucus. Add two measures of standard ingredient, which are those herbs again, another two measures, to the cauldron. Gently heat it for 30 seconds. Then add three more measures of the crushed mixture of the standard ingredient to the cauldron. Wave your wand around. You know, almost like, uh, look at the flick of the wrist. No, as in flish, swish and flick, or however you want to say it. Wave your wand, leave it to brew. <laughs> yeah, and uh, return in 70 minutes. And it'll be heated, ready to go. After it's heated, add two more measures of the standard ingredient. So you need a lot of this. It's basically like four different layers of that. Heat it on another high temperature for one minute, usually about 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Add four valerian sprigs to your cauldron, stir seven times clockwise, wave your wand, um, you know, uh, you're gonna put someone's eye out doing it that way. So no, just, you know, uh, not Patrificus Totem, Wingardium Leviosa, just go a sleeping drought, you know, and wave your wand and that completes the potion. Uh, the other one I was going to say, so this one is the most powerful one. It actually has been used um, by a lot of aurors to capture uh, death eaters. It's called the Drought of Living Death. It's the most powerful sleeping potion. actually causes the drinker to fall into a deep sleep, uh, usually into a death-like slumber. can be woken back up but people have died from uh, sleeping uh, in such a deep sleep. Uh, it turns a pale lilac color and is clear. Only advanced potion makers have been known to make this potion. Um, known ingredients are standard potion water, so just water basically, uh, powdered root of uh, spodel, uh, which is just like a, a root that can be found in the magical world, infusion of wormwood, valerian root back from that same colony in europe a sosphorus bean a sloth brain so like that monkey but like uh actually you got to take the brain out and crush it and it says uh the drought of living death brings upon its drinker a very powerful sleep that can last indefinitely the drought is very dangerous if not used with caution this is an extremely dangerous potion and execute with maximum caution the drought of living death will cause the sleeper to fall into an intense indefinite slumber unless woken back up effects are similar to suspended animation the drought is an advanced potion and is actually taught in the sixth year to newt students only and is actually on the newt's exam um, add the first steps are you'll add the infusion of wormwood add the powder root of asphodel for the second step stir twice clockwise then fourth, add the sloth brain. Fifth, add the sophorus beans to the juice. Stir seven more times clockwise. And uh, exactly Servus Snape's notes that he wrote down because he used to actually practice his potion during, um, you know, when he was a, uh, had a very special title we'll talk about later on. 
Um, but the Sophorus bean should be crushed with a silver dagger only, not cut, as it releases juices more efficiently in that manner. Add a clockwise stir after every seventh counterclockwise stir, and um, then you know you'll heat it up, and there you go. Uh, the Fernoculus curse. Um, also is known as the pimple jinx. Remember we were talking about the, with Fred and George today. Uh, the jinxes caused a person to break out in boils when they come in contact with skin. The effects can be cleared by the boil cure potion, um, which removes boils and emits a pink smoke. Uh, that's actually taught to beginners um, at Hogwarts. Includes dried nettles, six snake fangs, four horned slugs, two porcupine quills, and that's all found in the book of potions uh, that you can find. Um, also, uh, you would add in the pungus onions, uh, flubberworm mucus, ginger root, uh, and snake spine. And um, the pungus onion, just so you know what that is, that's actually just a, a magical plant. Um, and then, uh, actually, I'm sorry, it's a shrake spine, which that shrake spine, that's like a... Um, it almost looks like a snake, but it's like this magical creature that lives. Uh, it's actually found in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, is usually caught in fishing nets. Um, and uh, that's taught in actually first year students of Hogwarts by Servus Snape. Um, brewing instructions add six snake fangs in the Mordor, crush into a fine powder using a pestle, add four measures of crushed fangs to your cauldron, heat the mixture for 200 to 250 for 10 seconds. Wave your wand, leave to brew, and return in 33 to 45 minutes. Part two, add the four horn slugs. Uh, take the cauldron out of the fire before adding the next ingredient. Then add the two porcupine quills. Stir five times clockwise. Wave your wand to complete the potion. And this can all be found in the Book of Magical Drafts and Potions, like I was saying. Um, Jelly Legs Curse, of course, that's... The, a dark charm causes the you know them to have jelly legs or lock their legs or knees. Um, leg locker curse is similar, is similar to the locomortis curse. Um, it pretty much binds the legs of the victims together. Stick fast hex is a hex that sticks, uh, sticks like the target's shoes to the ground. So these are all like just like similar spells. Or like the trip jinx has been used along with those, which is used to make people trip or fall over or expamize. So that's cool. That's an incantation of transfiguration. It's a spell that binds two objects together, possibly by transforming an object into an adhesive or conjuring a sticky substance. Uh, substance. We'll talk about this in a minute. That's actually mentioned a lot in the 257, uh, 2579th edition of Transfiguration Today, which is a really famous publication that McGonagall is actually uh, known for being featured in. Uh, Transfiguration today, uh, it's actually used as a scholarly journal at Hogwarts. Um, and it's also, uh, it's a subscription magazine that you can subscribe to. And it's actually recommended to every newcomer at Hogwarts that takes a Transfiguration class. In 1890, Albus Dumbledore actually was a writer for the magazine all the way up until November 1926. Uh, and it does feature notable winners of trans the Transfiguration Award, which McGonagall was known for winning in 1950s. Um, and the addition of uh, four rare editions that you can collect of that is the addition of uh, 2,194. That's a W-O-M-B-A-T, 
the Wades into Animagus form debate is featuring there. The ICW, International Confederation of Wizards, they discuss Gamp's Law, what's a law of elemental transfiguration. Uh, they discuss Falco Asalon in there, which is an ancient wizard uh, who could actually transform himself into a falcon. Um, and then, of course, they discover, they talk about um, uh, Toby Cat, which was uh, a famous wizard that would transform himself into a fiend or like a kind of cat. And he also would use hypertychosis, which is like how to deal with unwanted side effects, so how to get over transfiguration. Um, untransfiguration is mentioned in there, which that like talks about all perils and things that can go wrong. Animangus transfiguration versus classical transfiguration. So I didn't even know that, that there's different types of transfiguration. Um, and it's a debate on what was lawful and what was not lawful. Another rare edition uh, in 2579 uh, is that edition and it came out in 1926. A liver. Uh, a liver um, Moni, which is the girl I talked about, you know, she established the wizard school in the United States. Um, she was a very famous uh, part of that. Uh, they talked about her actually establishing the school in the United States, and there's a big art article in that. In that article, also in that magazine, I mean, that feature edition, they talk about lycanthropy versus werewolf wolfery. So I didn't know there was a difference, uh, but that's actually really cool. Um, Arsonist Jigger is mentioned in there. So he was a human's potion expert. Um, he actually did teach at Hogwarts at one point, and he was known for uh, being a dark arts professor that of course didn't last long. Um, they talk about the scientific aspects of human transfiguration and actually like transfiguring yourself into another human, almost like polyjuice potion. So I thought that was interesting. And they do talk about in that edition as well, um, the suspects that were actually considered as the um, unregistered Animagi at that time. Um, and it even talks about like is vanishing without a trace possible uh, metamorphagus, which means you can change your appearance at will. Um, actually Dumbledore wrote that article um, and then uh, another rare edition is the 2085 edition. It came out in 1926 as well. Um, it had the Kiraspia combo, which is uh, wizard magics. It, it was like a wizard. She like would magic herself into a golden eagle. So that was their big article then. Um, Transdubia, which was an entire um, transfiguration clan that came out of Hungary. Um, and then uh, gauging wand power. So this was cool dealing with prior incantatum. Um, they talked about that in it and also um, as far as like uh, you know really um, how to engage wand cores with transfiguration. Uh, I didn't know that had really anything to do with it but that was really cool with what kind of is easier for you to transfigure to. Uh, the Animocles is in there. Uh, what that is, is that's the theory of uh, preformatalism, uh, pre uh, which is like, um, basically, this is really cool. So it discusses the formation of an organism of how uh, it existed um, in time 
of a mechanism because they believe like organisms uh, you basically have to have that in magical blood in order to master transfiguration and this is how it came about so that was interesting um, teachings from Tibet it talks about that uh, hermetic howlers so like some of the like most famous howlers that were like uh, cursed and sent out or bewitched I mean uh, changeling gasps awkward transformations that have occurred throughout the years and it actually even discussed uh, the Michigan dog man that was exposed who was uh, an unregistered anime guy uh, that was discovered in Michigan for transforming himself into like a werewolf like dog and he was actually preying on victims that were muggles and it took the entire ministry uh, to take him down uh, so I just thought that was cool for like the additions of Transfiguration. Um, very interesting because a lot of people think like just the way Sirius and Wormtail and um, you know and James and all of them, you know Padfoot Prongs, uh, all of them kind of did things. Uh, it, there's just so much that goes into it. Um, so just very interesting stuff, and that's all my interesting facts, man. Awesome, good stuff, dude. And, like. I liked how there was like multiple issues and like they came out and all of them covered different things and they're very rare so that's pretty cool man. Um, for myself what I'm going to do here is just read out the reasons why for myself Goblet's the best book in the series. It's literally labeled 1 through 18 and I'll read them out to you now just to close us out for the end of the book here before we tackle our differences episode next week between the film and the novel so starting right off with number 1. It starts off with, like, not a premonition, but a vision of events happening at the same time in another location. And we realize later that this is Harry being able to see Voldemort in real time. This is the first occurrence, the first time it happens, but it comes up so huge, especially in the next book uh, going forward from there. Number two, the Quidditch World Cup. They timed it perfectly, because how often does a soccer World Cup held? Every four years. How often are the Olympics held? every four years what book is this fourth book what year of hogwarts is harry in his fourth year it just was perfect like and like um the the, the event being left off completely kind of sucks in the film but like, it was such an exciting match that ended in a very convoluted way it was when you read through it it was so amazing like you didn't like you were so let down that it didn't show up on screen like that's the biggest thing everyone remembers like it didn't show the quidditch world cup everyone wanted to see it now, number three, also, this is the first time that we see the Death Eaters at large. Because after the Quidditch World Cup, they start marching and torturing muggles in the air. Like, we haven't seen it before. This is starting to where it gets starting to get darker. Not just a kid's book, but starting to get a little bit darker. Um, the first time we hear and read about the Dark Mark, when he gets conjured in the air outside of the Quidditch World Cup. Number five, how... I love this. This was a genius move from J.K. Rowling. She removed House Quidditch when it was the most most people's fans favorite part of the series she decided to take a risk get rid of quidditch at hogwarts and put something brand new in and imagine like if it wasn't as fun or as exciting like people would have been pissed like why did you rob us of quidditch it's our favorite sport that's everyone's favorite part of like book one two yeah. and three so not only does she remove it she replaces it with another event that has to live up to it and she does so brilliantly with the Triwizard Tournament and all the tasks comprised from. Are you kidding me? 
Fighting dragons to get a golden egg. Figuring out how to open an egg underwater. Listen to it. Figure out the riddle. Go save the people in the task too. Then going through a maze full of all sorts of dark creatures and illusions and objects and like a race against each other to get a cup. Like, what an amazing concept. So really, really good stuff on that. Number six, social justice issue. This is the first time a social justice issue is really brought up in any sort of fantasy production with uh, Spew, like the societal protection of elfish welfare. It's created. Hermione starts it, and she has like little to no support. She's a trailblazer. Like she, she's doing this when no one even cares about it. It's a social justice issue. We never see that. And keep in mind, this book was what back in two thousand three, two thousand four was made. This is a, it's huge for its time, and especially with stuff that's going on today in two thousand twenty one that's happening. Number seven, Fred and George start Weasley wizarding wheezes. These are the first characters to think outside the proverbial box of getting a good education, scoring well on owls and newts, and finding a good job. They want to work for themselves, and they start inventing without support. And honestly, they had to work against their mom, who was trying to throw their stuff away, thinking like, hey, it's not worth it. Like, this isn't going to go anywhere. Focus on your education. They were the first duo, and the first time you see people like thinking outside the box, like, hey, I don't want to just go get a desk job, or when I move here, get a really good job and call it a career. Like, no, I want to make something of my own. I want to do something new. And they didn't have any support from their parents at all. They thought it was a waste of time. So I thought that was really cool for people who are entrepreneurs and want to think outside the box, you know, and how they go and then number eight it's like a coming of age book too they start to notice the opposite sex for the first time like in a romantic non-platonic way finding dates to the yule ball Harry's feelings for cho ron being enamored with fleur ron getting angry that hermione went to the ball with victor like we're starting to see them start to have going through that puberty stage of growing into adults it's a great it's a great segue number nine international relations are you kidding me it's the first book where we're introduced to foreign wizards and just like you see in real life some are friendly and inviting to newcomers some see them as enemies and some are kind of apprehensive because it's a culture they've never dealt with before it's scary it's a brilliant (laughs) concept to put into a book like it's so great how you deal with the people who don't look and act just like you different cultures it's it's the first book in the series that did that um number 10 mistrust of the media Tell me that doesn't like like present prevalent today with Rita Skeeter twisting words and facts to make headlines. Very relatable to everyday life. What is like the media always accused of doing the same thing, twisting words to clickbait, make headlines, make themselves be the first ones seen instead of worry about the facts. Well, Rita Skeeter was doing this back before multi like before social media was big. Like social media didn't even really exist back when when this book was written. That's crazy, amazing. Number 11, the first big fight where the two best friends are no longer on speaking terms. Ron and Harry have the big fight in the beginning and they don't talk. You know how many times that happens in real life? Like, for people who are the closest friends get in a big fight and they don't talk for a while. It's not all just honky-dory, happy to be your friend here, like, and just go through the series. Like, no, there's conflict. And this is the first time you see, like, I know they both kind of pushed Hermione to the side in Sorcerer's Stone, but they weren't quite friends with Hermione yet. Like Hermione or Harry and Ron had been best friends since day one, and they they were battling against each other. Number twelve, we learn about the three unforgivable curses that you can't put under people. Like they'll learn you a life sentence in Azkaban, like the Vaticadavra and Imperius curse and Cruciatus curse. This is the first time we see what actions can lead you a cell in Azkaban for life. Like the things that happened to the good guys by the bad people thirteen years ago. What was happening? Like, again, it's like a more of an adult switch between a children's book to an adult book. Uh, number 13, we get to see the pensieve and how the trials of the Death Eaters went after Voldemort lost power. 
a great insight to exactly what we can kind of the history repeats itself right so what can we come to expect well look at what happened in the past with like all these trials and, and these things that you can see in the pensive um for how these things were handled at his additional power right now number 14 not no not least at all voldemort returns to full power like this is then the lead up for this entire series like oh he's going to come back at some point he's going to come back at some point we know it then boom he comes back and not only does he come back number 15 the senseless killing of an innocent boy cedric shows voldemort's cruelty and remorselessness he's not even human he just wanted that guy out of the way because he was an inconvenience he didn't have to kill cedric he's a 17 year old he's a child there was no necessary he could have got him like out of the way like you know maybe like erased his mind or something they could have done anything tells wormtail kill him on the spot on board like like just get him out of the way like he said literally says the words kill the spare like he's not even a human like 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 cedric doesn't even matter like he's a slug on the ground kill the spare it just shows you the level of evilness that voldemort possesses so that kind of gives you a big insight into who he is as a person now number 17 the imposter alistair moody this is like a very cool twist another another twist that we had like we had the twist last book was the first big one with you know uh Sirius actually being innocent, Wormtail being the mass murderer, actually. So that was a good twist, but this one, take it to the next level. This guy was underneath Albus Dumbledore's nose, teaching Harry and guiding Harry through this entire time, and no one detected it at all. And then last one I have, number 18, the conflict between the Ministry of Magic and the most respected wizard of all time. Two people that you would think would be on the same side, but one blinded by power and the position he holds, refusing to acknowledge the truth. Like, that's another thing that's very, very relatable to stuff going on today. Like, you know, if someone just turns a blind eye to something because they don't want to deal with it. Like, it's, there's so much to unpack in that book, this book, that it puts it all together perfectly. It's a great transition for the series goes, but in its totality, if you look at it from cover to cover, in my opinion, it's the best book in the series, and it's not really even close for me. So I'll end there. That's all I had to say. Really important stuff about the book, in my opinion, because to me, like I said, it's the greatest. And I'm sure we'll probably touch on more of this stuff when we do our book rankings at the end of the series and all that fun stuff. But until then, I am finished up with what we had to do today, tackling the rest of the book being chapters 34, Priori and Cantatum, through 37, the beginning, closing out Goblet. Next week, we'll close out entirely and finish up with the differences between book and film. So, do you think it's about that time to give him the old sign-off a room, my dude? Yeah, almost. Um, I was going to rank it for where I rank the other ones, because I've done that with all the other books. I would rank it... Um, this one, as far as the ones we've done, I would rank it number one, for all the reasons you said. And you do kind of have that massive Dragon Ball Z moment at the end, but also, you know... I think this is overlooked a lot like the whole book uh was really almost like a mystery um so it was a definitely uh almost a little bit of a different spin on it so i thought it was very creative there were very few plot holes like the plot holes we found we really had to dig into it on it um as far as like just the triwizard tournament like to create that was so um so creative like just to come up with that and exciting and intense uh, and then, of course, to kick it off, like you're already starting off on like the, you know, on the edge of your seat with the Quidditch World Cup, like the biggest Quidditch match we've ever seen so far. So for that, I will rank it the um, number one book we've done so far for me. 
Uh, two, I'm still a chamber guy, so I still stick with the petrifieds on the chamber and the death day. So I'd rank it goblet, chamber, third for me is prisoner of Azkaban, and then uh, fourth I got sorcerer's stone uh, for the books. And then, yeah, the difference is we'll talk about the movie next week, because I'll tell you right now, my movie isn't, isn't where the book is. Uh, to leave you on a little piece of a cliffhanger there. But yeah, man, you know, guys, uh, thanks for sticking with us. We know this one was a long one today, but, you know, uh, we definitely want to make sure uh, we did this one right and uh, we give you the content you deserved on this one because this is uh, one of the juggernauts of this franchise. Um, Definitely, you know, follow us on Instagram. We always tell you that official Ridiculous Patronus. Uh, at rbrow129 at jnelly you can follow us on facebook on our fan page at um, chase and josh factor fantasy on facebook Uh, leave us a review it really does mean a lot on there we see all that just like we saw our most recent one with twilight so we'll get to that at some point down the road at it 2029 i'm just kidding hopefully you get to it before then (laughs) but um yeah uh but yeah this has been um you know one hell of a ride Like I said, we are now uh, still in fourth gear. We'll continue fourth gear with our differences, and then we're going to start kicking it up into hyperspeed going into fifth gear off the rails. And with that, uh, I will go ahead and turn it over to you, and you can sign us off, man. Any any last words you want to say? Only thing is I'm not going to give a book ranking because then it's going to make what we do at the end kind of useless if they already know what it is leading up to it. So I'm not going to give my any of my book rankings away. I'll wait till we do at the very end and rank the books in order uh, with one of our last episodes of the series. So sorry, guys. You're going to have to stay tuned to figure out what mine are to that point. Um, but outside of that, guys, exactly what Chase said. Thanks so much for the, the love on all the platforms that we have. And so we are going to go ahead and sign off now, guys. And you already know what we do around here because this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off. off.